Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one -on -one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. On today's show, I'm pleased to welcome Michael Darby, who is the founder of Monument Realty. Michael uh, emigrated to the United States from Australia in the early 1980s, came here for a variety of reasons, but primarily for a, to chase a girlfriend that he had met at an internship when he was here. He's a interesting fellow in that he was a championship skier as a child and and uh, growing up and has a propensity to really like adventure and outdoors and and he talks about that extensively. He uh, started his development career with the Oliver Carr Company with uh, the Willard Hotel, which is a phenomenal project that he really relishes even to this day. Then he moved on to join the Ackridge Company after the Carr experience back in uh, the early 90s. And then uh, he met his partner, Jeff Neal, at that time, who they together then founded Monument Realty in 1998, using capital from Apollo and Lehman Brothers, he grew his company into a multi-billion dollar enterprise prior to the 2008 crash. And then when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, that kind of caused him to have to reinvent his company and his business, etc., and started from scratch and building it back up. Uh, we get into the, the recovery initially, but we don't get too much detail in his most recent successes and getting building his company back to what it was prior to the 2008 crash. But we do talk a little about his personal philosophies and uh, about the pandemic and some of his views of that coming in and out of it. So it's a wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's Michael Darby. So, Michael, thank you very much for joining me on Icons of DCRE Real Estate today. I appreciate it very much. Pleasure. So... Tell me a little bit about your current role at uh, Monument and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, so I'm the uh, founder of Monument Realty. We founded the company in 1998, so we've just had our 22nd year anniversary in the beginning of October. My role has uh, changed several times in different ways. Uh, as we grew the company, I had a, a partner that founded the company with me, so we shared the roles, um, I really gravitated more to the development side with some new business orientation. He was new business as well as the financing side. When we started to expand significantly, when we teamed up with Lehman in 2002 and took our shop to about 85 people, we were just running around all over the place doing as much as we could but more tied to the financing and the, and the financial structuring, both he and I, with a great development team that we put in place below us uh, and an acquisition team we put below us. That was also when we expanded the company into a full-service company 
doing all aspects of, of commercial and um, residential real estate. Then changed again with Lehman's bankruptcy and the departure of my partner, where we had to, I then had to uh, assume the role as um, whatever needed to be done at the time to, to, to get through the bankruptcy process and the recession, which was a daily task, as you can imagine, that um, a new a new task actually occurred each day, if not several new tasks of problems, major problems to solve. Since we got through that, uh, brought in new investment partners, we've gone back to our basics with my structure going back to being an over, overseer of all aspects of the company with uh, specific people in specific roles that I can interact with. I, I actually love my role now where um, I get to get into the acquisitions, I get to get into the financing, I get to get into the design, and I get to get into the development process and management, all aspects of it now, which is really, you know, goes to my roots and then the learning I've had. And with that comes the experience that, that I, I can't say too much about. I think experience is something that most people don't quite understand until they have it. And unfortunately, we have to have been doing this for a while before we get it. And once you get that experience, I think you realize how, how valuable and efficient it is. And so I'm very careful to use my time to use that experience and make things as efficient as possible. If I can speed up a process because of my knowledge, I will. And that's what I like to jump into and, and move things along. And, and it's, a, it's actually a very fun role right now. It's interesting. I've been watching your career for a long time. Uh, I didn't know you before you were you started your company, but seeing what you've gone through has been fascinating. It's one of the reasons I'm really interested in diving in a little deeper into your thought process because you've had to go, mm-hmm. go through quite a bit of ups and downs in your career, and it's been interesting to see. So to, mm-hmm. to get a better understanding of your resilience, which obviously you've demonstrated, I'd like to get back to your roots. So obviously the accent mm-hmm. is such that you came from Australia. Yeah. Talk a little bit about yes. uh, your origins, your family, and uh, where you grew up. You were in Melbourne, I understand. Yes, Melbourne. I was uh, one of uh, four boys. I was number three. All very competitive, but very different in, in, in all ways. Uh, father, an engineer, and mother, school teacher. Went to um, very good schools in, in, in Melbourne. That was the one. Uh, one of the good things my father did for us, education was very, very important. And I agree with him that that education I, I received from a school, Scotch College, um, was invaluable. Thereafter, went to the University of Melbourne doing engineering. And then we had the ability to take um, time off, a year off to do study abroad or study anywhere, actually, and practical work. And I decided that was a good chance to to get out of the country and, and see some other things. Previous to that, I had competed at a high level in, in freestyle skiing, which seemed unusual for an Australian, but my father had uh, enjoyed uh, skiing. He had worked in Switzerland when he was young for multiple years, so skiing was part of his life, and we used to ski regularly in Australia. I liked it. I, I got fairly good at it, and I took it to Europe for several seasons and competed in, in this in the, Swiss area, Zermatt is my base, and, and skiing around there. I then realized that I could take time for this year off in the months before before the year started. So Australian summer is, is the winter in America, so I could leave at the end of my school year there in um, November or December, come over here, travel a little bit, and then ski 
for huh. a season to compete, do the things I wanted to. Then I came to DC in the off season, so to speak, and worked here uh, actually for a construction company, Charles H. Tompkins Construction Company, sure. uh, to gain more knowledge of the construction aspects of, of the business. Very, very good experience working for them. Then went back skied again before going home. They had at that point said, you know, we want you to come back. I had one, one year left to finish at college, so I planned to come back. I where, where, do you, where do you ski in Australia? I didn't realize there were, there were mountains there. Yeah, <laughs> and I think people have a, an image of Australia as one big flat country with kangaroos jumping everywhere, but uh, it isn't. It's, very, it's a very diverse country, even though uh, there are large areas of the, of the middle of Australia that are desert-like or desert. The perimeters of the country are much greener. Victoria, where Melbourne is, the state of Victoria, is very green, and it has three significant mountains there that we skied at. One, Mount Hotham. My father was very uh, involved in its development through his engineering of bringing it up to snuff as a, as a legitimate ski resort. So we skied there a lot. And I remember when I first started skiing, it was, um, it was there's the hill, and if you want to ski down it, you've got to walk up it. So we got pretty good at um, walking up hills before we skied down them. Uh, and then, of course, the lifts. No chairlifts? Uh, <laughs> so originally in this mountain, yeah, in this mountain originally there was the rope toes. I don't know if you remember yeah. them. It was a little sure. thing that spins around yeah. like that and you grab onto a handle. Then, of course, advanced to uh, the Palmer lift and then to T, well, we had T bars. And, sure. and T bars were always funny because, yeah. you know, the, in Australia, early on, the T bar rope would break and instead of getting a new rope, they'd just tie it up. So now the Tension on the rope was so great that at times it would just physically lift us up when we when we um, went over a certain space, certain spot in the in the run because it dropped down and it would pick us up in the air, which was always so we had to kind of balance on this T bar until it came back <laughs> down again. But you know that's we, we didn't know any better. We were young and uh, all my brothers skied too, so we, we all enjoyed that together. But it also trained us to ski properly, which is that you know if you don't learn how to uh, walk up a hill, then you don't learn how to ski the best places in the world because a lot of my best skiing has been off piste and, and, and walking. So it was a very good education. And, you know, as I said, kids, very, you can teach them almost anything young. And that was the way we saw it. It's the only way we knew it. And we, we loved doing it. So it was great. Did you compete as a, I did. As a I ski racer? Freestyle, freestyle skiing, a freestyle. So uh, it was more hot dog back then. They started calling it, but we had the bumps, the jumps. And for a while, I did some ballet, which was, Kind of silly, really? but they, they had the ballet going as part of the, the, the competition that I wow. do every now and again. And was, that's fun. We call it spinning and grinning mostly. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, was, you know, it was a time in my life that I was, I was young enough to enjoy it. I didn't care about money. Uh, it was in between years of school. So I got to travel. And when I go to Europe, I would spend the first month traveling and then do the skiing. And I met some incredible people and, and just had a ball. And, you know, you, you look back in your, in, your, in your life and say, what was the best time in my life? I don't really <laughs> want to say that was because I'm wondering why I did the rest of it. But it was certainly a phenomenal, phenomenal time in my life with you know, carefree and able to go and do something I like in a, in a beautiful environment, healthy and experiencing the way people live in different countries. So it was a very good experience in that standpoint. So adrenaline must really turn you on, I'm guessing, if you, you like to ski race. Yeah, I think, and- I think 
think the people that know me know that um, <laughs> I like to strap to my feet, that um, I have speed involved. I'm a big kite boarder. I like the, the wind pulling me along with the kite. I, I, I ride bicycles and surf and, and anything to do with athletic type things I like to do. It's, it's, it's actually my nature, but it's very common in Australia. We, we're kind of born and raised to, to be by the water. We're born and raised to be outside rather than inside. Now, that's one of my big issues with kids today in this country that they they don't really get to enjoy the outside as much as the outdoors as much as they can, even though I think that's going to change over time that we're going to become less dependent on our phones and things. But there are also some of the best memories I had was were, were, was being outdoors all the time in the sun, at the beach, in the water, on my bicycle and, and doing all these fun things. So, you know. So engineering was your, your major and yeah. was that from your father? You mentioned he was involved in developing or building? No, I, I had a, um, I pushed towards, um, yeah, no, he was, he was a mechanical engineer. I, I pushed towards more construction engineering was, was really what it was. And so I, I could see uh, development in my future. I, I mean, I saw how that worked early on. Didn't quite, quite understand the financing, but I was more interested in building buildings. I was more interested in being on the on the ownership side, and I started from the general contractor side, being on the ownership side. So, what turned you on with real estate? Much more, I think the first lecture I ever had that that talked about the financial side of it. And I've always been, I've always realized that to to get the things that I wanted in life, the things I enjoyed, I had to earn money to do it. Like every trip that I took to Europe, I would save up with multiple jobs to go and do that. And it was a simple step to say okay if i can if i'm going to do construction if i'm going to do things associated with buildings how do you make the money out of the buildings and i've always looked at the end goal uh, rather than the means to the end even though we as a development company do it all you still look at where you're going at the end you know? and i say that to these to the guys that we have the young guys that we have you know remember why we're doing this and each time we look at something we have to look at what flows through the costs uh, down to the bottom line and, and then to, to the monument team. So you learned the financial piece. Was that during college or was that, you know, you worked at a construction company to start with. So, you know, yeah. that's more mechanical as opposed to, you know, financial. Yeah. yeah so, no, so we did we, the, the college I went to, Melbourne University or University of Melbourne, had the, you had the ability to do financial packages as well. So I, I brought that into it. But with that said, I, I will tell you that I truly uh, evolved in that thinking as I experienced what it meant. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, big believer in education, but I'm also a, a bigger believer in how to apply that education and then how practical experience really teaches you what it's about. And uh, you know, I, I remember when I did my first townhouse on Capitol Hill that I bought cheap, renovated, and then split it into two apartments and started getting rings and had the reappraisal of that building such that the value created was very exciting. That plus getting rent from the building that I put a certain amount of money into and a, and a good return on that money, you know, showed me very simply what you can do if you do it properly. And if you can do that enough times or then expand to larger size, you have the sure. potential to, to do well financially. So what brought you to D.C.? How did you get here? Yeah, DC. That's a good question, and I, it's kind of two answers. But I'll 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 allude to the second answer, but I'll tell you the first answer. So DC, I knew someone here in DC, but when I came to America, 
after the skiing and to do my practical side of it, I had a problem that I had contacted a bunch of people about work. Study was easy to do, but work. And they said to a person, they said, well, yeah, we're happy to talk to you, but we've got to see you. So it's hard when you arrive here and travel around the country to to arrange interviews in the way you normally have to and then go back for follow-ups and the time it takes to do that. So uh, I thought, look, i got to try. So I came over, actually bought a car in L.A. that was uh, I bought it for $500 off the street <laughs> in L.A. because the problem in L.A. is going to look at cars is you got to get about five buses to go anywhere to look at cars. So there was one on the beach not close to, not far from where I was staying and had a big sign on it, $500, and then, uh, this big old uh, Vista Cruiser is what it was. So I bought that car to travel around. I actually had some friends that met up with me that, that would travel with me. I said, look, I'm looking for a job, but I'm happy to treat you, have you travel with me until I stop and find a job. So it was from LA to San Francisco and then uh, down around to the, through through Arizona. And we, we actually went all the way around the East Coast, down the South and up the East Coast to, to Washington before I found someone who I called and said I'm looking for a job and he said come on in and the interview process actually went very quickly. I guess he took a little bit of a flyer on me, but the interview the interview went 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 very uh, went very well and he he offered me a job. It's actually a very funny story because it was uh, Charles H. Tompkins, the company, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the the guy who hired me, good guy, kind of gruff and tough and. Uh, didn't give you much time to talk to him about things that you were concerned about. And I remember going to him at one point and at the pushing of other employees, going and asking for a, a raise from him because I was only going to be there a year as my visa would allow and uh, the time allowed. And, and I, he had offered me a fairly low compensation. But during the time I was there, he had promoted me several times. So I went to him and I said, George, I said, um, and it took a lot of nerve for me at that time being a young guy and, and going up to someone like this and uh, I said I need a raise and uh, I told him why I told him all the rehearsed story and he basically just turned to me and said no and I walked out with my tail between my legs and was kind of upset I didn't really need the money but I it was a matter of principle obviously I kept working kept working at the right level well about 30 years later the 30 years probably 30 years later I'm talking to someone from Charles H. Tompkins and they said, uh, you know, we've heard a story that you've never given us any work because of an incident that happened 30 years ago when you worked here. And I said, what? And they said, yeah, we, we heard through, because I told one of the guys as a joke that I knew a Charles A. Tompkins, the only way I'd give them a job is if they upped my salary to what it should have been then and pay me the present value today of what that would have been. There's a joke, I told them. <laughs> and they, for 30 years or all this time, That's thought, funny. you know, Mike wouldn't do it. And you can imagine this guy, George, who had said no to me, seeing where Monument came, you know, where our Michael Darby came from where he was to what he was doing and, and all mm-hmm. the work he may have missed out on because of that. It wasn't the case, just so you know, but it's kind of a funny story in a way. Yeah, so I worked there for, for I, I got that job and I liked Washington because at the time it was pretty obvious there was a lot of work going on. There were cranes all over the place. And um, that plus the feel of Washington was, it was, it was a very comfortable place to think about working in, in, in that time of construction. So I was really pleased when he did offer me that job. And I worked on some great projects. I worked on a, 
IMF building in um, on uh, I Street, I think it is there, near the Royal Bank building, where we did one of the first slurry walls in the, in, in the city, if you know what that is. Yes. Um, and I worked on 1333 H Street that MRP just renovated. I, I built that um, originally Boston Properties owned it at one point. So I did have some pretty fun history that I did even in that one-year period that I'm reminded of all these years later. So then you joined the Oliver Carr Company after that? Well, the Tompkins thing was such that I went back to Australia. Yep. I was coming back to the U.S. based on the job offer they had given me prior to me leaving, but there was a recession. It was 81 at the time. Yep. Yeah. Oh, they, no, they'd been hit by the 81 recession. Yeah, yeah, they'd been hit by the 81 recession and that had affected them. So the job offer went away, but I still wanted to come back because I had also um, met a young lady during that time that we got very close and we actually got engaged and married. Uh, so I, we had long debates about where we would live. And I agreed since she hadn't been living in Australia that I would come back to the US. And so I did come back, but we didn't get married. She, and because the process took 12 months to go through, it's a nightmarish process and all the background stuff and all the things they do uh, makes you feel unwelcome a little bit with the process in, in, in relation to coming to this country. So I came over and she just wasn't ready, which was very frustrating because in the time that it had taken to get the approvals, I had been working with another construction company in Australia where I got a job. I had actually been doing very well there, and they had offered me a, uh, an ownership stake in the company. I had a house on the beach in Beaconsville, on Beaconsville Parade, if you know that area of Australia. It's a beautiful area. Uh, even though the beaches in Melbourne, they're phenomenal and a pretty good life. But I believed in your love, and I still believe in love, and so I wanted to see, I wanted to follow that through, and so I came over here. But because I sold everything that I owned to come over, it was kind of a slap in the face that she wasn't ready to do it. And I didn't think it was a good start to a relationship where it was kind of disproportional in relation to the commitment and probably would have caused problems later on if there'd ever been fights that that would have been thrown back in people's faces. And I, I didn't think that was a good thing to do. Plus, I had a 90-day period to be married within. And so there wasn't any time as she wanted to do to get to know each other better. It's like, no, we don't have that time. So we split and I had got the job in that time before we split. No, I didn't get a job uh, until after we split. I decided to stay and see if I could get a job because I still had a period of time on my visa, get a job and, and, and see if there was anything worth, worth um, staying for. And that was when I luckily got the job with the Oliver Car Company working as an assistant project manager on the redevelopment of the World Hotel which sure. obviously was a job of a lifetime. And I think I got the job to tell you the truth, Tom, because when they interviewed me, they mentioned the project multiple times and I kind of gave them blank books or what I think they thought was, you know, comfortable looks that I didn't go, oh, my goodness, can I really do that? And the reason why they didn't know what the project was at the time because I'd only been here for a short period of time. So I think through my ignorance, they construed that as confidence and picked me to do the job. But I, I did it and I loved it. I loved it a lot. And then it's a beautiful project. It's just a gorgeous project. building. Yeah. But what happened when we broke up, I, I was in a position where I only had uh, 80 days left on my visa. So I went to the company and said, I'm going to have to change my visa status because it's going to run out. So they agreed that I should 
do that and they were happy to sponsor me doing that. So we got to Lloyd, did all the things we needed to do at very close to the expiration of the previous visa. And the lawyer said, just go up to Canada, to Toronto, because it's a member of the British Commonwealth, and that's mm-hmm. where the closest place to go to change the visa over, go to the American Embassy, give the paperwork, and they'll stamp you. They'll change your visa status, don't stamp your passport, and, and away you do. You come back, and then you'll have a year, you know, what's, what's more of a temporary visa process, but then during that year, we'll take you to a permanent visa. Right? This is one of the top immigration lawyers in D.C., so did all that, got the paperwork. They said it'd be, you know, fly up in the morning, fly back in the afternoon. So I did. Just took a sweater and a briefcase and thought this is going to be easy. I go into the embassy. There's long lines in the embassy and there's the stations where the embassy employees were was like a bank with these big bars and little slits that you talk through to talk to the embassy guys. And while I'm going through it, there's a lot of people there that, didn't speak English, so they asked me to help them with their forms, and I'm just thinking about I just want to get this done, get it you know, signed off, get back to the States and continue with my, my good job and the house that at that time I'd rented and bought a car and all those things, I'm going to continue with my life. So I finally go all the way through and get to the bank-like station and push my application across to the gentleman behind the, behind the bars, and I, I can remember his face vividly still to this day. And he he looked at it, he looked up at me, he looked down again, he got a stamp and he stamped something and pushed it back. I'm expecting to to you know grab it and go on. And it said uh, it said rejected. I'm like, rejected? What do you mean rejected? And he goes, You you know what the word rejected means? I said, Well, my lawyer said this would be a fairly simple thing. But I don't care what your lawyer said. He said, I'm not gonna grant you a visa to go back in the United States. And my whole world, as you imagine, fell apart right then. I said, what does that mean? And he goes, look, I'm, I, are you stupid or something? It means you're not going back. I mean, I can't go back and get my stuff. And no, like, you, you're not going to get re-entry. You will fly from Canada back to, back to Australia. I'm like, oh, my God, that's not the way it was meant to go down. So I walk out of the embassy and, say, and, and, and start making calls and obviously call my, my lawyer and say, said, what, hell, what the hell? And he said, I've never had this happen I'm like, that's not very reassuring. So he told me to do things and he said he'd do things. And I'm stuck in Toronto going, what, what's going on here? I called the Oliver Car Company and they, they try to see what they can do and they're working on it and I'm working on it. And it's just a nightmare. And at about 10 o'clock at night, I get a call from an administrative assistant of one of the, the heads of the Oliver Car Company. And she says, Michael, I've made some calls. I think I've got this resolved. I'll call you back. And I'm like, who do you know that you could call to resolve this? She said, let's not talk about it now. She calls me back in an hour and she says, everything's been been solved. You need to just go back to the embassy the next day and that it'll all get get worked out. I I go, what are you talking about? I mean, this is the United States Immigration Department. And they don't do anything for us, right? Me <laughs> a year to get out of Australia to come to, to here on a Beyonce. But I said that I, I just—it's impossible to leave. She said, "You just got to trust me." So I go back the next day. I was nervous the day before. Imagine how much how nervous I am this day. I go back in, same room. It's a room I now despise. 
in that room, going through the long line, same people asking questions on how to fill out forms. And I look up and there's three of these windows and the guy who said no is on the window on the right and I'm just praying that I'll get him again. Oh, sure God. enough, I land there on his window <laughs> and he looks at, he, I push it across, he looks at it, he says, he says, wait a second, I remember this. I remember, I remember you. you were here yesterday because yeah. he saw the rejected. And I yeah. said, please, sir. I said, we, we, we've done, made calls, we've connected with some people in the, in the US and apparently that the issue has been resolved. He goes, what are you talking about? He said, this is the immigration farm and nothing gets resolved. I said, please, could you at least ask someone if anything you can do? He said, wait here. So he goes back in the back room, comes out about 10 minutes later, has my passport, pushes across to me. And as he pushes it to me, he says, son, he says, I don't know who you know, but you know someone very high up in the United States. And I opened it up and it was approved. And to this day, I still do not know who it was. I, have, I was told not to ask. I was told to let it lie. I haven't asked. I, to this day, I don't know. And people have accused me of that being a story and, you know, how is that possible? And my only retort to them is, well, I'm here because that's, that's exactly what happens. And I can, I, can, I can have people talk to the lawyer who I then said, I shouldn't have paid you a dime because you left me stranded in Canada. Um, so, you know, things, certainly things in life are meant to be. And that's, that's one of those things that I see as, as, as meant to be. So came back, went on with the, 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 the Willard, and then getting a notice here. Let me see with that up. On with the Willard and very, very successful project for me and very successful project, I think, for the city uh, and a great, a great start to my career. Then thereafter, I started doing things on my own on Capitol Hill. I did townhouses, as I mentioned. I had an office building with residential on top. I bought a 240-acre farm in Manassas, Virginia, and turned that into a golf course with residences. Now, I didn't do that until after the recession, so I guess I got to do that first. The 1989 through 96 recession, real estate recession, world recession, but also you know how badly we were hurt in real estate. The business of development slowed down in 89, 90. So uh, in 91, I left car because it would have been, would have happened anyway, because they were, they were obviously reducing the staff. It was a and very tough time in the market. Yeah. Very tough time and, 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 and a wake-up call. And it was not only a wake-up call from the standpoint of, you know, jobs don't go on forever and, you know, what am I, am I doing the right job? But I also had made the fundamental mistake that I've never made since that again, of buying a property and providing personal recourse on the on this 240 acre farm that I bought, and I had a loan that was substantial, a loan that was big enough to bankrupt me at the time. Not that I had the assets that I have now, but enough to worry me. In '91, I had my first child, so that was very concerning, and so I had to do something with this property, or else it would have crushed. So I worked very hard, and I put together a team and we designed a golf course with residential. And then the search was on to find investors. And finding investors on anything at that time was very, very hard. Finding very lenders hard. to finance it was very, very hard. But I, I got very lucky that I found um, a radiologist uh, from Cumberland, Maryland, who understood golf course, understood golf. He and I worked together to get the golf course built. We did Bristow Manor in, in Manassas, of course, one of the first uh, high-end daily big golf courses in uh, in the area, it did very well for a while. 
the residential, residential units sold. We had a good low basis that did well until every man and his dog started building golf courses for residential communities. They flooded the market with golf courses and then the, the amount of business you know, was decreased, but not decreased to the point that it, it uh, was still positive cash flowing on the, on the thing. So we've, I've had that golf course, still own it, had it since 1990. Oh, interesting. 1990, when we opened it too, I think 1992 we opened it. So I'm probably one of the longest term owners of a golf so, course in, in the country. Let me flip back to the car company for a moment. How long were you, you said you were at car from, for almost 10 years? Is that how long? Uh, no, it was 84. Uh, seven years? Yeah, okay. seven years. So after the will, I did a lot of office buildings. I did the Southern Railroad the road building, sure. um, mm-hmm. uh, 15th and K. I did 555 11th Street. Did the MCI building uh, for a little bit on Pennsylvania Avenue that became whatever the, the, the group that bought MCI was. So I did multiple office buildings around. I, I looked at some other hotel deals, one in Detroit, one in Philadelphia, but car was not eager to go to other locations right i'm glad we did and the willard was certainly it was an okay project but the project was helped by the significant investment tax credits that came with the, with the building um, did, did mr carr give you any insights in the industry and in the business was he a good inspiration to you he was hard to connect with you you didn't spend a lot of time with him normally but i was actually pretty lucky in that the willard was a pet project of his and right he was kind of interesting. He was kind of shy sometimes. He, he wouldn't tell his people that he wanted to walk down and see it. So uh, he kind of called me and say, you know, Michael, can I meet you down there? And we go, well, you can call me anytime to go down. I'm, I'm there all the time. So it was great. We'd walk through and talk about it. And, and I think from that, I got some insights on how he was and how they were. And Car was a very good company. If you look at the people that have come out of Car, it's a great alumni that, that, that they're dotted all over the, all over the city. I think that one of the things I did learn, though, was some of the things they did do that I, I don't do, which is they do a little more recourse lending than I do. And that's, that's one of the reasons I did the golf course as a recourse loan, because I didn't quite understand there was non-recourse. Once I found non-recourse, believe me, that's the mandate. We don't do anything but non-recourse lending. But it was a good company, good people. It was mine growing up in the industry and, and awakening. And I... My big belief about anyone who does real estate, there is a point in time where it's a aha moment that all of a sudden becomes clearer. And I think if you're in a bigger company with a segmented with property management and development and construction and financing and acquisition, you sometimes can't put it all together. And I encourage anyone that does real estate like that to spend time in the other departments trying to see how they connect. But when that aha moment comes and one came in, Car and I think it really came in car when back then the computer systems were Lotus and we went from Lotus to Excel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when Excel hit and the beauty of the cells and the way the cells work together, I kind of knew the whole process before, but I really cemented it as you could look at how the cells connect them in the different parts of it. And, and so I had my aha moment there. And by the way, the other thing I should say about this because I, I think it's very important for anyone who's watching this who's in real estate that's young. To remember, we're developers, but the largest cost and the greatest risk is always a construction piece, and we shouldn't ever forget that. We, we are building buildings, and if you don't pay attention to that portion, but significantly, we, we can get ourselves in trouble because you can't do anything with the land costs, the fixed land costs. The financing is tied to the construction. The architecture is tied to the construction of the consultant. So the construction is 
the most important thing. We need to always focus on that. And that was that was why I was very pleased that I had a construction background because the, mm-hmm. I knew how to put the buildings together. It's been very helpful for us, Monument, uh, and for me in my career. But the Excel aha moment was that it started to all make sense to me, all the different pieces of it. The return requirements, the different parts of the pro forma that are affected, that affect the return requirements and which ones have more impact and less. And I have a natural mathematical ability. And so it just started, you know, like the movies, things flashed in front of my eyes that just now all of a sudden it's together. And the business became so much more exciting to me. It's funny you look at it that way. I was a financier and always have been. And I always thought that what I was like, I was like a gas station attendant. So I would fill the car with fuel and money's fuel. And you were building the car itself. So you were actually putting the, the whole machine together. And mm-hmm. the money that I was putting in the deal was basically the fuel to make it go. That's the kind of the analogy I use for our industry from that yeah, perspective. But your, fuel, your fuel has a cost to the project. And, and the faster I build the car, the less I have to pay the fuel costs. And then the, the, the better my returns are because of the, the kickers I get based on you know, the, the preferred returns and, and getting money above that. So, yes, I mean, yeah, it's always worth looking at, at, at those analogies. But the fuel can't, you can't have the fuel without the building. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all want to build good buildings, but there are, there are better ways to build buildings than, than other ways. There are more efficient ways. There are more cost-efficient ways. There's a lot of ways you learn to build buildings, and I think people sometimes don't don't think as much about that as they should. But the other thing you have to remember is they're both inanimate things. Somebody has to drive that car. So (laughs) it's human beings that make it all happen. So the relationships are the most important thing in our industry, which I've learned over the years. Well, I agree with that, and, and, and I have some strong opinions about relationships today versus what they were like, but we can talk about that. Oh, sure. Let's keep going here. Yeah. So after car and, of course, the, the markets, and I guess your golf course deal, you decided to join Chip Ackridge's company. So tell me how that I, evolved. I did. It was actually, yeah. So Jeff Neal, who I was with at, at car, and he and I did some deals together on the side of car, and Jeff, phenomenal real estate thinker at the time, and really was head and shoulders in relation to understanding the, the movement of the financials and the the sensitivity of financials and, and how that works. So he and I worked very well together for quite some time. And he then, he actually left car and we, we went to start a golf course REIT company. And we had a backer that was going to work with us to assemble a group of golf courses, then buy them with the backer, then uh, turn it into a public company and then cash out through that. And we were all set to do that. He had left on me at my golf course company and we were on the verge of that <laughs> and then the, the backer pulled out. So Jeff went back into the market, worked with Ackridge, and then uh, when he could see the market starting to come back, he said, you want to come back? And I happily agreed to. It was, the, it was the right time for me to come back and I came and worked with Jeff as a partner and really it was Jeff and I working together in an in a acquisitions department for Chip that we were kind of had them we kind of had the run of what we needed to do, what we could do as far as bringing in the deals for the company. And I think that was a, a good thing. I think it was a good thing for Ackridge, but it was a little bit of a concern for the company because I, they were really 
And if you look at their past, they did one deal a year or maybe one every two years, and they were not really set up to do more than that. And in 1996, when it was, there was the, the deal started to flow much, much faster as the market came back and the equity came back in the market. And so Jeff and I were like little kids in, candy, in a candy shop that we saw all the deals that were available and with our past knowledge of what a good deal is, we, we saw a lot of deals. So we wanted to kind of supercharge things and bring a lot of deals to the door. And that's when we teamed up with Apollo Real Estate uh, and they agreed that there were a lot of deals that should be done. And we and Apollo started buying significant amounts of property around, like we, we started on the toll road and then we moved and we didn't deals in DC, but were, we were, were buying you still at Acre, Were you still at Accridge at the time or did you do program? Well, the, te- the teaming, right, the team up, the teaming was with us, with Accridge and Apollo, with Jeff and I managing the Accridge, arranging the Apollo account. At the time, it was obvious to Jeff and me that there was work out there, significant work out there that we could do with financing partners where we wouldn't necessarily need to pay all the other people in Accridge as well, but our, our return to be higher if we started our own company and did it that way. So we told Apollo we wouldn't do that. And Apollo then said, wait a second, not without us. So the, the easiest solution was to divide up the assets in with in, within Acreage that Apollo was financing and Chip had his own deals that he was doing and split off from Acreage, still with Acreage having ownership in those projects and us manage through those projects and keep going with Apollo. So that's what we did in 1998 when we formed Monument. Did you learn a lot from Chip Ackridge along the way? So I should tell you, I was only there 18 months with Chip. Oh, Um, okay. There was some discord because of the compensation and I didn't care about the pay, I care about the ownership compensation. And... Apollo wanted me to make sure that I was compensated properly. What really happened was that I was going to leave anyway. And okay. when the whole thing, Jeff at the time then said, so would he, even though he didn't really enjoy it, I think his compensation was, uh, was better than mine, so therefore he didn't have to, but he thought that we as a, as a team could do better in the, in the future. Uh, okay. And so then we left. Now, look, it wasn't, you know, I don't think anyone thinks it was, friendly, 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 but it wasn't horrible and it was, the division wasn't a bad division. And if you look at what Chip's done since then, he's done phenomenally. And I think if anything, he gave us what we needed to get back into the market and do, and I appreciate that. And I think he and his company got something from us, which was the knowledge and ability to be able to do multiple deals at, at the same time and mm-hmm. how to work with groups, equity partners that want to do multiple deals. He, he may say he would anyway, I don't know, but you know, I, I, there's always um, a, a mutual benefit. I wasn't, and uh, Jeff wasn't, we, we weren't going to work for people for very long. It's just not our nature. We, we were always people who were going to work for ourselves. So at some point in time, I think it would have happened. Um, it happened for me at, at that time, and I think it was the right time for us to do that. And we had a phenomenal run with Apollo from there onwards. Uh, it really was 1998 through 2002. We were teamed up with Apollo, and we did, all our Wellgate projects, we did our, our Presence Park projects on the toll road. We made money on all of them. We nearly made a huge deal uh, with a group called Windstar in uh, on Presence Park, even though later they went bankrupt. They were a, they were a telecommunications company. 
we still did well on those projects, but we had a deal that would have been massive. We also owned 901 York Avenue land, which was, we could develop a 530,000 square foot office building. And we were going to move forward to develop it. And then Boston Properties came along and offered us a number that we couldn't refuse to sell the land. That was a big point, big turning point for us at Apollo because it endeared us to Apollo significantly. The way that it, the reason that it did was our deal with Apollo was that they were putting in most of the equity as equity sources do and getting their return on investment. And then we would get a, a what's called a promote. We, had a bunch of deals going on with them. And if we developed it, it would have been a significant amount of additional equity going on that would have been out getting these returns before we could get them to promote. We made a decision very quickly that selling the land and not developing it, and then it would have been high prestige to develop them, a building that size and pretty good fees. But we made a conscious decision that we wanted to show our partners that we were good partners and we wanted to get into our promote by doing that sale. It, all the money that Apollo had invested had been repaid to them and we had triggered the promote situation. And Apollo treated us completely differently once that promote situation occurred. So talk a little bit about that relationship. Was it purely deal-by-deal deal joint ventures or was it an entity-level structure when you started your company? No. Okay, so how did you yeah, fund the start of your company? You, you and Jeff just yeah. dug in your pocket and started it up yourselves with your own money? No. No, that was the beauty. When we split from Acreage, we had about 2 million square feet of available land that we took with us from Acreage with Apollo. They, okay. We transferred everything over to us. Now, obviously, with that amount of development, we needed staff. So we had 10 staff that we brought with us. We had the need for, obviously, additional capital as well as the, the capital pay for the, for the staff. So the deal was that Apollo funds in the portion that we could. And to tell you honestly, and Jeff and I went into our bank accounts and, and showed them every dollar we had and said, we'll put it all in. And they said, okay, good, you've got all your money in, so therefore we trust you. And they put all the rest of the money in and we were paying a preferred return on that. Everything was crossed up at the time because of the fact they put all their money in, they put the, the majority of the money in. And as I said, we went back to develop stuff and it was, it was that point in time we sold 901 in 2001 that now we've got into promote and everything after that was was tied to promote structure. And it was a very good relationship. Apollo, at the time, two things. One, some of the smartest guys I've ever met in relation to understanding real estate and real estate. Bill, Bill Mack? Bill Mack and his team, uh, Bill Scully, who's still Bill around. Bill Scully, right. With very unusual, very uh, intriguing, uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I love working with Bill. They really helped educate us on the nuances of the nuances of the financial structure and and the offsetting of risk when it makes sense. And we 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 had deals where they would put we would put money in with Apollo and then go out and also get a third party investor. We did multiple deals with Prudential, for instance, because we just felt that we had enough going on with these other deals that we wanted to hedge a little bit. And so it was a very good relationship that way by working out which ones were worth putting large amounts of money at a higher cost basis in or uh, hedging it with a, with an institution like Financial. They also understood what we brought to the table, which is really good to have. And that's different today with investment partners we're dealing with. So what does that mean, what we bring to the table? Well, the expertise that we have. I mean, if you're 
out of New York, you don't know the nuances of the zoning process. These no. you don't know the nuances of of the billing permit process. You don't know the nuances of the sites you buy and the constraints associated with the sites and what the best shaped building is and what the what the tenants in the bill in the in the market want. Law firms used to want they could take buildings that were 110 feet wide without a problem because they had a lot of administrative staff that they could put in the middle of the building and that's lower cost space. And now they don't have that. They want narrower buildings. Can you find 80 foot site wide sites? There are, there are specifics that we did every day that, that we had not. Construction means and methods and costs, what materials use and what not to. Apollo was expert at staying out of our stuff when they didn't need to, asking the right questions and letting us know they, they are asking. But when we gave clear and precise answers or went and researched and gave them clear and precise answers that they believed in, they were, they were very quick to say, thank you and move on. And, after a while, as we did multiple deals with us, they stopped asking those questions because they had complete faith and confidence. I don't feel the same about some of the investors that we deal with now in, in this world. They just, they, they, a lot of young people that are second guessing themselves, and I don't want to tell you, but by second guessing themselves, they second guess us. And then they go out and hire consultants to second guess us. And those consultants don't know the question to ask. So they report back to the, the, the investors that, you know, here's the answer, which is not the correct answer because there's many more layers of answer. So it takes a lot more time and it creates a situation where there isn't the basic level of trust and, and respect that you should have for someone that's been doing this as long as we have. You know? So how long did the Apollo relationship last with you? So in 2002, uh, Apollo did the Times Square development, which was the Mandarin Hotel, and, uh, with related, with related with companies, related, with related companies, yes. And they—that was the largest construction loan in the country at the time. Yep. And the equity they put in there was significant. So it stopped. We went through uh, fund one through four, I think, and I think uh, three. And this was all from fund four. And so that took basically. They said they don't have money available in that fund for anything other than this to make sure they got it right. So we said, okay, can we? Go and talk to other people. And they said yes. And it was a shame because we were having, it was a great relationship. But then we went and started a relationship with, with Lehman Brothers. And as soon as we did that, we lost Apollo anyway because Lehman started asking for everything from us. How, like how did you, I assume it was Dave Rodini. You, you started. Dave Rodini. Yeah. How Dave did you Rodini. meet Dave? How'd you meet Dave? Well, Dave was running, running around our market as he should be, being, you know, this being his market. And we met him, Jeff met him, and then I met him, and we we clicked pretty quickly. He's a, he's a very intelligent man, very sharp in relation to what's happening. He doesn't write much down, but he certainly remembers everything, and he, he gets the connection. So there's a very easy connection with him. And once again, he's one of these guys that doesn't really want to know about the expertise you have. He'll check that you have it, but once he's comfortable that you have it, he, he never saw any need. To spend a lot of time on that. We never had much oversight from anyone at Lehman in relation to the means and methods or construction itself. So once again, it was a very easy relationship. For him, he knew that he was the money guy. He needed to help generate profits that makes him money and his company money and to stay out of minutia that doesn't, doesn't help get things done, doesn't do it in an expeditious way. So it was a very enjoyable relationship. It started with Franklin Square North that we did with Prudential. And normally we don't, we didn't have to put a lot of equity in deals uh, with Prudential because we 
they would give us a forward takeout. So we would finance them for forward takeout. Right. And um, we'd use Bank of America and they would lend 100% of the, of the cost because of the forward takeout. And away we go. In that situation, they didn't want to lend 100%. It was less than 100%. So we put money up, but then we needed some more. So that's when we got a little bit of money from Lehman to start off, but it was a way to, to start the relationship. Once that started, it snowballed. It snowballed from there to multiple other deals, all kinds of deals, and they wanted us to get into residential. So we bought uh, Potomac Place in, in, in uh, southwest DC and on and on and on and on. Then it, it actually went from there to they wanted to do construction loans, so they did construction loans. We couldn't turn anywhere to go and get money from anywhere else because it was always lean. We did do some other deals with other people, transversing. And some of the people, you know, ninety-five percent of our deals were, were limited. In total aggregation, can you estimate how much money they invested with you over time? Out of curiosity, when they went bankrupt, their portfolio value with us, developed portfolio value with us, was about two point six billion. Oh my! So goodness. if we were putting in thirty percent, then that's eight billion there. But we, we can, if you add up everything over time, there's been multiple other deals before that. Yeah, there was a, there was, you know, I, I'm sure it was over a billion dollars that they, they, they put in over time. Then I got it out again to put it in over time. And a lot of people don't understand. I, you know, people talk about Lehman bankruptcy and my answer is they can blame real estate, but they can't blame the real estate that was done in DC because there's not a, there's not a bad piece of real estate that we bought. There's no, there's things we bought that had to be developed to get the value of them, but not, we didn't buy anything. At a premium that was that was above market in my opinion. And the reason we didn't is because it, I don't think people realize this. There's two parties to an acquisition. There's the investment partners, they're there, and then there's us as the developer or owner. We're going to buy a building and then create value. And we're we're stupid as developers if we if we don't see where the profit is that's going to pay our promoter. Why would we want to spend two years, three years developing a building without seeing where our kicker is? And if we're putting in, for instance, 10% of the money, and at the end of it, all we do is get a return that's the same as the investor's return, that's a pretty dumb deal for us, right? We need to get a return that takes that 10% and turns it into a five or six multiple so we can do multiple deals like this and really make some money. So we, we were very careful to police ourselves in relation to in relation to the assets that we picked and the, and the deals that we did. Lynn was throwing money at us, but we, we turned down a lot of deals that didn't make sense for us to do because there was no future benefit in relation to seeing our promoter getting paid. You know, there's a lot of investment partners that say, well, we're going to make sure we get you, if you do something wrong, cover on that side, and we have a lot of equity in the deal, that. That's fine. I get that. I get the reasons why, but they don't realize people like me, I do this more for the upside. I, I mean, I'm, I, I care more about the upside. I obviously do the upside, but I care more about the upside. And that is more punitive to me not making that upside because of the time spent getting there if I don't make any money. So I, you know, sometimes it's a stick or the carrot where I'm a, I'm a carrot guy to get deals done because we care about that and we work the deals as hard as you can. If the deal doesn't make, we still work it because you can't not work it. But we care more about making sure we extract every penny out of, out of a deal. That's what we try to explain to investment partners. If people 
were with us for the whole 22 years we've been around. And uh, what I worked out the other day, 80 buildings or something that we've developed, well, I've developed over my career, and, and mine was probably 60 buildings, 65 buildings in that time. You, you can see that we, we've always cared. We've got a summary of every project we've ever done and you can see what the returns are to us. So that's important. What I'd like to dig into a little bit is it sounds like you're, the, the thought process is creating as much value as possible as quickly as possible. So instead of perhaps a little longer term view. So you would, it sounds philosophically like you would not want to build an REIT, let's say, that just cranks, that you're running and you're not building deals all the time and creating new projects. You're not an operating long-term type investor. You look at trying to maximize value as quickly as possible and then turn that value either by selling it, recapitalizing it, or doing something like that. Is, am I right with that thinking? Yeah, you are right, but, but there's a very simple explanation. I'm not the true end user for the products that we build. I'm not the logical end user for the products we build mm-hmm. or end owner for the product we build because they will accept a 5% return on their money mm-hmm. at that point. Yep. A 5% return means that there's a, there's a 20 multiple on the value that we get on the building. Right? I, I can't accept a 5% return on my money. So building to that for me would be a waste of time. Right? Now you're going to say, yeah, but if you build to what you build to, it's not 5%. No, it's not 5 but it may be a project return cost of 65 and mm-hmm. leverage it may be a 10 I'm, I'm not a 10 either, right? If someone's going to pay me 20 times the NOI, I'd be a fool to stay in that deal, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, it's just, it's just simple math. Take your money and you You've doubled it or tripled it or whatever you've done and put it into the next deal that you can double or triple, right? Now, with that said, the other part of that is I don't have much of a choice in relation to that either because my investment partners for the deals I do are opportunistic. And if they're opportunistic, their returns are higher. Therefore, for them to make their returns and pay their investors and get their promote, they have to have a short-term horizon too, in and out. And so that's usually a three-year, four-year horizon in relation. And I'm good with that. I'm, I don't mind paying taxes. I don't mind paying taxes at all. Because the very simple fact of the matter is if you're paying taxes, it's because you've made money. So selling and paying taxes is a, is a reasonable thing for me, especially if I'm only paying uh, capital gains taxes. So, yeah, I'm, I have no problem telling people on that. We were branded at one point in time as merchant builders. I don't even know what that means. I can't even imagine where that came from. But <laughs> it, it's not that. We're, we're just, as far as the process, the efficient process, that has been built up with mm. supplying product. My role is buy the land, I've to rezone it, rezone it, build the building, lease it up, sell it to the next guy who's going to be the long-term user, right? Got it. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud that I've got a lot of buildings around town that mm. people have made a lot of money from for, for many years, made good cash flow and then sold for number. I looked at... Um, 980 Street, the Victor building the other day when it was sold, I'm like, Jesus, that's a lot more than we got for it. But that was 20 years later, and and that's the way it looks. And good on them, they got that money. Good on them that that I'm mm-hmm. pleased and proud that we built a building that they could make a lot of money. That's the way it works, right? It's funny. You, it's interesting hearing what you say there because one of my earlier guests was Steve Lusgarden at Blake, and Blake has a philosophy of owning forever. You know the, their properties. Just they never sold. And they will never sell. Gary Rappaport, another guest of mine, 
never sells real estate. He just owns everything unless he has to sell or he's forced to by his partners. So it's just a different philosophy about the thought process. And it sounds like you're interested in creating as much value as you can, as quickly as you can, and then move on to the next project, more or less. So it's interesting. Well, I mean, I, and there's a little, yeah, we're gonna, we'd have to drill down a little bit more. I mean, let's, let's do some basic math, right? If I've got $10 when I start off and I can get a 10% return on mine, then I'm making a dollar a year. If I can build a building and I can get a promote and it takes three years and the 10 I can turn into 40, I've made $30 over that three years. And the $10 investors made three. Explain why I would do the former, the the, the, the investing. I wouldn't, I don't, right now, if you've got $100 million through whatever, you made the money, family money, whatever it is, it's a different equation. But I don't, I couldn't have got to the stage that I am here at Monument if I didn't leverage up to do this because every project gets more expensive and therefore more equity's got to go in. And I've got to keep up with the equity requirements that the, the investors make us do. So I've got to leverage to do that. So let me now go into the thought process that leads me here and what happened in 2008 when you've got all these things going on and all of a sudden the music stops and the, and the money stops. And that's the risks side of blowing and going and, you know, all, all hands on deck, go, let's keep going. Then you have, oh, uh-oh, now what do we do? And now we're in workout mode. So how did that, did that change your thought process at all when that happened? Is that a curiosity? No, it didn't because, I mean, there's always going to be a recession. Is there going to be, there's going to be, there's always going to be a situation where 2008, a Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. Now, first of all, they should never have let them go bankrupt. We could talk about that for hours and stuff that I know, but they should never let them go bankrupt. That was absurd. And it caused, it caused a lot of pain and suffering in many markets around the country where Lehman in their bankruptcy had significant holdings that they could manipulate the market. And they were protected in their bankruptcy, especially when the bankruptcy, the bankrupt estate started hoarding cash from sales they were doing, such they also had a lot of money to be able to do. So they could use the bankruptcy provision, which was not having to do things when they in a the timely manner when other people do. And then secondly, and squeezing their partners, but secondly, then using the cash to whip people into shape when they needed to. It was, it's a very dangerous situation that, that was created through their bankruptcy. You would never want to be going against those people. And by the way, we didn't. We never went against them. We always stayed with them because that was the right thing to do. And they they crushed a lot of partners that that tried to use buy sells and other things to get their assets back. And Lehman was very very tough. So you never expect that bankruptcy to happen. It's not something you could do. That's not really the issue either, because what we've always done. And we say this very, very firmly to our people is you've got to manage the downside just as much as you've got to look to the upside. And managing the downside ties to everything that can get you. And as the documents get more and more complicated with joint venture agreements, as the lenders get more and more cautious, as it gets pushed and where it gets pushed is always back to the person doing the day-to-day work, the developer, we've got to make sure that we continue to protect ourselves in relation. So the big thing is obviously non-recourse loans. The big thing is in, in those those guarantees that are, are out there, which are the carve-out guarantees or the completion guarantee, or those kind of guarantees, you've got to make sure we fairly and can be managed through. Additionally, we don't do deals where there isn't significant equity in the deals because 
that does provide a buffer for us in relation to the guarantees if you come back and hit us. And it does provide that the partner, whomever it is, even Lehman in their bankruptcy, is going to protect their equity should the equity be still be there. And even in 2008, when prices went down, the equity didn't disappear. And that was a, a reason that DC couldn't have a lot of as many trades as you'd expect because there were a lot of equity in deals. That equity goes down, but there's still enough to protect. And there's also the feeling that it could come back. So we're shielded in relation to that. And we did that very carefully with Lehman throughout the um, previous days before their previous years before the bankruptcy. You've got to protect that side. Over and above that, you've got to make sure your contracts with your architects and your general contractor in particular, right and fair and can be administered. So there's not things that can backwash onto us as a developer or the partnership. To me, it's being overly cautious but prudent in that cautiousness without focusing on those items that don't really matter. I'm always intrigued about the negotiations I see with people that haven't been through what I went through in 2008, what other people went through. They concentrate on items that don't make any sense in relation to the documentation, right? Look at the look at what happened in 2008 and see what you can do to protect yourself in relation to that. Now, I've tried a couple of times, which has been met with interesting responses from my investment partners. I would like a, a bankruptcy provision for you. And they mm-hmm. look at me and say, what did you say? I said, look, I said, if you go look bankrupt. Look what I went I know, through. Yeah, I know what happens. I've seen what happened with Lehman. You go bankrupt. And I gotta, I've got to manage through this, and, I, and you, and you being the controlling entity, I can't, I can't do anything if you don't want me to. So I'm at your, I'm at your whim, and it may be a default provision under the um, loan documents. We can't have it. Now I don't get that, but I, it makes a point in relation to there are two sides of this equation. But I can, I can protect myself enough otherwise that that when 2008 happened, the biggest problem was the our staffing that we had, besides the staff we had office overhead with the work just being depleted. It was two-phase depletion. We saw some of this coming. A lot of other people didn't see because of what was happening within Lehman as we worked with them. First of all, the stock price plummeting was not a good thing. And a lot of the people we dealt with had upside in relation to their stock options mm-hmm. that unfortunately had not vested yet. So they were five-year stock options five-year vesting and had vested yet and you could see these four people who had built you know the stuff the highest the stock price was was around 82 dollars and they all they all came in at like 20 bucks so they had 60 bucks of value with their options which were significant amounts of money and they actually had borrowed against that money because the banks were willing to lend against it and bought stuff you know ski houses and beach houses and cars and stuff and now they're seeing now they're seeing that drop precipitously, and their vesting was going to not be in the money. They're not going to vest, so they didn't have anything. But it didn't matter anyway because their stock prices were going down so low. So low. Well, the first step was they saw it dropping, so that was frustrating. But then it got to the point in the second stage where it dropped below the vest, the amount that they would vest after, and then they knew they were out of the money completely. And you could feel the attitude. So we made adjustments as we were feeling that from the people who were dealing with the land. We had to. They, it was too obvious that they were not focused on the real sure. estate, yep. their business. They were focused on what was happening to them, uh, their lives. And you could feel the concerns. Then when the shorts started happening, the shorting started happening with Lehman, the whole attitude and feeling really started changing as well. There was some desperation that you could feel there. And then they did this thing. I don't know if you know that they sold a bunch of their loans. With a with yep. a string attachment, they could buy them back 
And when they went bankrupt, we got calls from uh, lenders all over the all over the world. One a bank out of Sweden called us and said, "We're we're now your new lenders on such and such a project." We go, "Who? Who are you?" And <laughs> what, what? Because Lehman had sold them at a discount. They sold them as a discount before uh, they went bankrupt. And then during the bankruptcy process, they argued uh, with the judge that uh, that agreement should be null and void and that they should get the loans back. And the judge sided with um, people who the loans were sold to that they the loans were sold and they were owned by them. So they were the new lenders. And the, the frustrating thing and the unusual thing was these lenders thought they were, they all these assets, all these loans they had were cash flowing assets. And we, when we told them, we don't have many cash flowing assets with development companies. These are all in development. They were shocked. I mean, it was shock, right? And that was one of the hard parts about the bankruptcy. Those guys then tried to find a way to default us because they couldn't go after our partner, Lehman, and Lehman was a borrower that sold the loans and the partner. They couldn't go after Lehman because they were in bankruptcy. So they tried to go after Monument, or me, actually. So we get these ridiculous calls from lawyers who were accusing us of all kinds of things in the non non course loans are going to all the carve-out provisions and trying to make up stuff in relation to carve-out provisions. So we did a lot of batting away of these lenders' counsel initially, and then we finally convinced the lenders' counsel, and there were about 10 or 12 of these different groups that were doing this, we finally convinced the, the lenders' counsel, we're not the bad guys. We're, we're the victim, like you are, of Lehman's bankruptcy, but more importantly, we hold the keys. We're the ones that have all the knowledge of these developments and you go after us and get rid of us, there's no one knows what's going on. We're the only guys that can finish these off and yep. get these done. And I will tell you, between September 2008 to, to um, really right up to start of 2010, I've had more things happen that I, in my real estate career, as far as people, the way they interpret things and the way they do things, than I had had, you know, not all through the, the previous years, but a lot of things happened that I just couldn't imagine. And I didn't, I had never dealt with them because I never dealt with a situation like this. That's one of the things about real estate. Then there's always something that can surprise you. you, you you've got most things covered. With, I've seen my experience before, but you, you, you've got most things covered, but not everything. And all of a sudden, things like this happen. You go, Jesus, what else can people do? And, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was spend a fortune on our law, our lawyers to push them off because I'm now going backwards financially. So we pushed them away. They, they then realized we were the key. And we, we, every loan that was sold to Lehman, and luckily they were also sold with discounts, but every loan that was sold, we paid back completely. So these guys all made money on those loans. So we're, we're now their best buddies. Now, I don't know what I can do with a bank in Sweden, but you know, we're their <laughs> best buddies at that point. That was a difficult thing, very difficult thing. And then just everybody you know, was so desperate. There were people trying to come at us from everywhere. Vendors, you know, there's a security company on the on the, on the Watergate that tried to come at us because Lehman wouldn't pay them. There were foreclosures that Lehman let happen that they shouldn't have let happen. They let happen. We tried to ask Lehman let us buy the loans. You know, all kinds of things. It was a it was a two years of just a mess. But in that time, I knew that the most important thing to keep Monument going. I knew the most important thing was the personnel. We had some top-rate people, and I had to keep those people. So I went backwards financially, but I put the money into making sure those guys stayed around. So I knew when the market did come back, and I knew it would come back, 
that the investment companies would then go to to replace Lehman or to be the new investment groups, they wanted to see a deep bench. I mean, who wants to see a shallow bench after a recession? That's not what people want to see. So when we that was the best decision I could make because we we started back up fairly quickly again with money, understanding that we had a deep bench and that a deep bench was more important than how much equity we were putting in the deal because most developers at that time didn't have a lot to put in deals after the recession. So they, they really saw that as a key thing and, and, and we started going back and doing the deals we normally did. None of them crossed up, which was big, with multiple different equity partners that we made sure they were the right equity partner for the right type of deal. And, you know, we've got our, built our portfolio back up to a significant size again and have been doing that for the last, you know, 10 years. Did you actually put Monument in bankruptcy as a company? Or no, no. You did Monument, okay. Monument was never in, in, in danger of bankruptcy. No, Monument is, a, is our operating company. Monument right. is the company yeah. where the fees come through. So sure. as long as the fees are being paid, then that pays the salaries and and that's why I know there was not. So only the deals, paid. only the deals went into bankruptcy. Then some of them, yeah. But no, none of our none deals. Of, none of the deals no. did. Okay. No, there was there was one foreclosure or two foreclosures of the Palatine and the Watergate, right. and that was because Lehman just decided they didn't want to, they didn't want to keep funding. And, and interestingly enough, the foreclosure at the Palatine, they sold the loan, sold the project on the steps of the courthouse in Arlington. In February, when there was two feet of snow on the ground, it had like 12 bidders and uh, the bid price was $24 million more than uh, the loan amount. Wow. So we fully paid the bank back through that anyway, right? So that's going back to the assets. We look at assets and we underwrite assets with a promote. We can, we've got to see the promote in the deal or else we won't do the deal. And that may be why people aren't seeing as many deals from us as we did you know, with Lehman, part of it also is I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to do that many deals because that was I was losing touch with the project with having that many, very, that many deals, and then too many project managers and too many people that kind of wanted to do it their way. And a company is meant to be a company that you do things your company way, and I don't want people doing things differently than us because part of it is, as I said, protecting protecting the downside. So that size that we're eighty or eighty five people with, you know. Half of that in the development side was just uncomfortable. It was not, it was too big for us to have catch everything. And I know we still did well, but there were some mistakes made. I know it cost us, we didn't have to. But now we have our systems down where we've got me or other um, principals of the company touching everything, you know, reasonably to, to make sure that people who don't know how it works exactly can come to those people and, and we can watch them all the way through. And it's much more comfortable. How does Monument set itself apart from its competition, other developers? I mean, how, how do you see yourself as differentiating yourselves? I think the first thing is you've got to look at, at, at our resilience. So that's a, that's a major factor. And we can, I, can explain, I can explain each deal in one off, explain each deal, but you, don't have, you shouldn't have to know that you don't have to go through that because we, we, we came through something that most people shouldn't have come through, the recession. And that is because of our method of dealing with doing it. Secondly, I don't think a lot of people know this, isn't it? During the Lehman days, we knew that Lehman wanted to do what they want to do, which was keep expanding. But if we have to keep expanding with them, then we're putting more and more and more and more eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. So we did a deal with them where we cashed out three times during that time in Lehman. 
So it was six years, we cashed out three times significant amounts of money, which went into the bank and was there for us when problems hit. We've always, as I said to you, and it really goes back to the, the, to the 901 New York Avenue deal, where no one to take the money off the table. And I, I say to my guys here in acquisitions, what do you do when you've got a blackjack and the deal, and the deal is showing an ace? Do you take even money or you, you, you run it out? Well, the odds clearly say you should go for it. Clearly, it's 36 to 52 versus 16 to 52, you know, the odds of the card. So it clearly says to do it. But I don't think that's the answer. I think the better idea is to take even money so you always get the win. And I, I keep explaining that to these guys. This is part of what we need to do. At the right time, take the money off the table. And we've always been good at seeing when that right time is. Our ballpark deal, for instance, we bought a million and a half developable square feet in the ballpark, right outside the ballpark. And so we bought it for $45 a foot. We worked it for the next two years as the, as the market moved to that area and see that it was going to happen. We got this city in line with things that we wanted to do. And then we sold 50% of it to McFarland Partners at $100 a foot and went and took out a loan on 50% of it and took a $30 million checkout for Lehman Arts. I mean, people don't see that. They don't see that. In fact, with Lehman, you know, in the bankruptcy, at one point when the, the um, receivers guys said, you know, you, you took us into this horrible project in the ballpark, I go, yeah, okay, so you're saying that because it's pre or post-bankruptcy. Pre-bankruptcy, Lehman took $30 million off the table, right? So, you know, it, it, perception is, is, is always an issue. But so how are we differentiated? We're differentiated because I think, we're, I think we truly are smart at what we do. A lot of people don't see the deals, the smartness of the deals till they finish, and then they go, oh, look what money you just did, and I, I get that. It, it doesn't work there. It doesn't, the end result is the end result. You've got to get to the end result, and you've got to have the smarts at the beginning to get to the end result. So we're very, very careful in relation to that. We plan things out, and we look at, we look at what, you know, what could happen. You know, that 1425 purchase, we, we thought that really, really well. You know, people saying, well, you know, you bought an empty building. Well, people will find out fairly soon. We didn't buy an empty building and we knew we weren't going to buy an empty building and therefore it is a really good buy in relation. We don't like to compete head to head on deals that come to the market where we know there's going to be six or seven bidders and, and the number's going to go up to a number that doesn't make any sense for us. Right, and we sure. know there are other people in the market that do that, but we're not going to we're not going to buy a deal that we watch our promote getting taken away because it gets artificially bid up to numbers where people think it's going to make money, but it won't make money. We don't do deals based on fees because we can't make a profit if it's only running fees. And the people who buy deals based on fees, they're a different kind of developer than us. And I've got to tell you, I, as an investment partner, I wouldn't want to have a partner that only looks at the fees. So we're very careful. We do want to make market fees, but the deal is not based on fees. The deal is based on, on the promote side of the market. And I, I don't know how to make people understand that, but I only have a certain window of time in my career to make money. You know, and when we do development at three years at a time, even though we might do five or six developments, major developments at a time, I only have so many years to do those deals before sure. it's over. So I've got to make money on each of the deals Otherwise, A, I'll lose my staff, and B, I won't, I'll end up at the end of my career without the money. So we've got to pick the right deals. And those deals aren't run-of-the-mill. They've got some hair on them. They've got um, things that we have knowledge of. 
from other things we've done. They need some work to get through the process to purchase it. They're just more complicated deals. They're broken processes where uh, the bid process didn't work and we'll come back in afterwards and, and work it out. And they're usually deals that have option prices to sellers. They're usually deals that it's worth it for the seller to come with us for that. But if it doesn't happen, then our basis is still where it needs to be. So we hedge our deal in relation to stuff as well. We're not doing the thing again with Lehman where we just buy everything. And I told you, we still bought good real estate, but we bought everything because the structure that made that for us made sense then. The structure today means every deal I do, I want to make a promote and I want to make sure that day one we see the promote. And we've got 40 Patterson, which is a great project for us. Our land basis is $53 in Noma. I don't think anyone did a land basis for $53. And then we designed a building that is probably $30 or $40 a foot under what we've seen on other people pricing in, in town because we designed a very efficient building. We designed a building that is efficient in relation to this facade. I mean, people are spending fortune on facades. I don't, I don't get it. I, and I don't get the efficiency situation. You ask an architect, you say, what should be on a residential building? What should be the corridor width on a residential building? I'll tell you, you get six different answers from the, from the architect, right? But let me give you an example. If, it's a, if, if someone says a six foot wide and it can be five feet, that's one foot on sometimes a 150-foot run on 12 floors, okay? So that's 150 square feet times 12. That's 1,800 square feet. And we're selling these things at $600 a foot these days, right? Okay. How much is that? It's only a million dollars, is it? Yeah, something like that. It's, it's a million dollars. I care about a million. Not $900,000, right? Six times 15 is nine. Yeah, 900000 It matters, right? So... I'm always intrigued by this, you know. We really care about that side of it as well. What is the right level of efficiency? What is the right width of the corridor? How do you where you put your loading dock in relation? They don't lose all kinds of space on the first floor. We were the first people to say this box situation, this this package delivery situation is absurd right now. And we were all falling into the trap where we're having it all delivered to the first floor, and the first floor is now taking the the, the staff on the for the building, they're now mail sorters or package sorters and they can't provide the services they otherwise provide for the building because they're all day dealing with packages and you have a package box delivery system you're taking up valuable square footage that otherwise you could rent because you've, you've got to build this building so we put our boxes on the shore in the corridor in the wall of the corridor on each floor so it's part of those units it's factored into their square footage which means um, the box doesn't cost me a dime because of the value of that. It's much more convenient for them. The delivery person takes it up and puts it in their box on the floor so there's nothing downstairs, there's no mess, doesn't bother the front desk guy. The front desk guy knows him because it's Alpha FedEx guy. <laughs> he locks, puts in the box. We even put a little delivery, uh, food delivery box underneath that was, um, that was insulated so that the, the, the food delivery people could deliver because... What young woman in today's world wants the food delivery guy coming and knocking on the door and, and she has to open the door? That's not what they want. So this is a method to do that. We, we, we look at things in a completely different way. We think that the elevator systems in, in buildings is completely wrong. We think the security system is completely wrong. What we do in security is we try to, we try to track those people that should be in the building rather than stopping the people that shouldn't be in the building. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is what you're talking about leads to my next question with regard to what's going on right now in the world. And so we're looking at the pandemic. 
How do you see that changing your company short term? And what do you think the long term implications of the pandemic will be for the real estate markets going forward, on your opinion? My first comment is I want to know, I want to talk to those people who can say with um, when they work for a company that, that involves a lot of interaction, how they work more efficiently from home than they do from in the office. Because I'm going to call them a liar. It, 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 it's not possible. <laughs> the, the beauty of having an office with everybody in the office is you can quickly get to those people you need to and, and, and interact in a way that is a proper interaction, which is a face-to-face interaction so you can feel the other person's feelings in relation to the discussion. Not being able to get to that person because they're working from home, they're not really working, they're doing something else, playing with the dog or the kid or whatever, that is not efficient and doesn't and doesn't work well. So I'm not going to buy into it. And I, I'm no disrespect to any one particular company, but I honestly believe the companies that are telling people they can work remotely for longer periods of time are doing it for profit and profit only so they can lower their costs. The bottom line is it's much more efficient to have people in the office to do the work in the majority of businesses. Secondly, these offices are now going to go back to where they should have not come to with the open space office, which was stupid in the beginning because people don't really want to sit next to someone else that closely and work with them. In fact, the joke is that the young people that you know we all say wanted to interact and want to have open space, all they do is put their headphones on and listen to music and couldn't, they don't really care whether anyone's there, right? So that was a complete um, farce and the people that did it you know, the, the principals say, well, you know, I wanted to be one of the guys, so I did it too, but I found it to be just ridiculous because I need to have private conversations with different employees at different times and I have to take them to a conference room and now I'm using the whole conference room, you know, 600 square feet or 200 square feet, whatever it is, versus my office. That's going to go away and it's going to go away because we've got to get back to individual offices for the right people and ones that have doors and can be shut. So, they're protected from the virus that way. I, I'm not a big believer that you can set up a air conditioning system to deal with this because you've got to get the air to the spot where the two people are standing, right? I'm talking to you six feet away. You've got a problem. I, I, how do I get air between us? You know, mm-hmm. we're standing all air comes down and, and circulates in between us without it, A, either being uncomfortable or B, just there's a spot. You've got air coming down. We've both got to stand like, you know, the cone of silence in Maxwell Smart, you've got to be in that position for <laughs> the cone to come down. So I just, I, I, look, I've done buildings for years and I just, I know people are going to say you can do that, but you can't. You just cannot do that. You, you circulate the air more, that's not going to do it because it, it, it could, you can't circulate the air enough. You'd have to have 50 air changes, you know, a, a, a minute to make it work. You just can't do that. So listen, I think we've got to still be careful with all these things. And I think we've got to give people fair and reasonable isolation when they're doing. They're the bulk of their work, which is in their office. That's the way it's going to be. I think that the internal spaces now have to be partitioned between them for cubicles, partitioned safely so that people can, can feel comfortable working away. Look, at, this comes back to me, to our employees become very, very important again to listen to. We kind of got rid of that when we were a buoyant world and we went to the cheaper open space and wanted to reduce our footprint and save our money, but we weren't listening to the employees. The employees need to be listened to. They're going to feel safe if they're shielded from the next person on, the, on an hourly basis, on a, on a basis that they work, as I said, from the space month. So that, I think, is should be the way it works, whether it does or not, because of the way certain groups get hold of this and pull it in a certain direction. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but 
to me, people come back to work in their offices and we, going forward, we expand offices that are open, open, open offices and those offices are already set up as the cubicle or, sorry, the office space with, with doors and, and, and that will, will um, continue and be desirable. We may actually spend less on our TIs if there's a good office space already set up. We don't have to adjust that office space because we're buying a building. We went through the other day. They had these beautiful 10 by 10 offices all around the perimeter. It's a four-sided four side building. Beautiful 10 by 10 offices. And to me, they look really safe in relation to this current situation. Look, I think that's the way it's going to go. And I think it could actually help the office market if we pay close attention to it. Working from home, I did it. And, and I have a one-year-old, so I know these, that other people have kids that are a little older, which I think would be worse. At least I could hide from him. But when he knew I was there, he would, I'd be on a conference call and he would, he would stop me. So, yeah, it's not the way to go. And, and I don't think people want to be in a situation where they're, they're isolated, don't have that camaraderie, can't be gregarious cannot be a team in relation to the work that's being done. And that's that's outside of money. We, we believe we are a team and, and want to interact and we're very transparent with each other in relation to what we're doing and we can't do that when, when we're on calls. I mean, you know, the Zooms don't work sometimes. We know that, don't we? we just so, yeah, maybe that's contrarian, but that's the way it should be. And we go but, back to work with cautious. But are you yeah. adjusting your business accordingly? I mean, I guess I understand your thinking and what you want your company to do, but the, the reality is, and what I'm seeing is that I think there's an evolution of thinking, both in the residential side of the business as well as the commercial side of the industry. Certainly, the hotel and retail business has changed forever, in my view. So you're looking at a completely different framework there. So what implications does that have over time? It's going to be interesting to find out. I mean, I'm writing a blog myself right now, speculating on how people are going to think about how they interface going forward, how they do business, how they live, all those kinds of thought processes. You know, Amazon has basically transformed the retail industry. Probably you think about buying things online first before you go to a store, as opposed, except maybe for groceries and things you absolutely have to have. So the whole thought process has changed with regard to that now. And the pandemic has actually accelerated that big thought process in my view. But I'm curious to hear about your view on that. I'm not seeing it quite like that. So let's take the hotels. To me, that the hotels could be the cleanest place in the world, and especially with this virus. You don't think the hotels are going to double down on the cleaning so they never get someone with, that gets them gets the COVID there? They, they, they can't afford that, and especially a large organization. Uh, management company like Mario or someone like that. So you know they could be the cleanest rooms that you'd ever been, cleaner than, than your house, cleaning, cleaner than your office, cleaner than walking into a retail store, especially, you know, the, the ones like the grocery stores now that you worry about a little bit. So uh, I'm not really concerned about staying in a hotel. I, I think that the precautions that they will take, which are adjustments, but I think they're, they're mostly cleaning situations. I think those are going to be very, very safe places to do it. As far as the other side of this, the residential. So the you know the issue with residential is, did, are we now building too many too many common spaces for people to go that they won't want to hang out in that lobby we've set up with a coffee bar and the seating over here and all that? They will not. They will be very happy to spend the time there. We've seen it all across the country. Take Arlington County. I live in Arlington County. I've always liked Arlington County. You go to the restaurants and bars there now with the setup set up. 
And people want to be in the restaurants and bars. They want to be out and about. They want to be around other people. It's human nature. You cannot stop that from happening. And so when this does slow down the pandemic, when, when a vaccine does get discovered, then I think we're going to go back to normal much faster than people people think. And 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 John, you know this in the past the past problems and problem times we've had recessions. I mean, everyone's always talking about, oh my God, this is like this forever and all it'll never like 9-11. The, the thought process yeah. after 9-11. Yeah. I wouldn't fly, we'll never fly again after 9 Right. Right. That's what they said. I you know I I just I don't believe it because I think that pre-pandemic we all evolved to where we were because that was a natural evolution without anyone stopping us. That was there was no virus, there was no other things to stop us evolving to where we all wanted to be. So we went there, right? We've had a pandemic. Yes, we can adjust a little bit, but we're going to still evolve back to that position that we had previously, right? And so I don't. And by the way, I'm not a big proponent of everything being delivered. I think it's a nightmare. I think that that you get stuff that's delivered that is personal clothing, the wrong color, the wrong size, not the shape you want it. I think it's a very bad way to buy clothing unless you've bought it before and it's exactly the same process. The, the clothing industry for years have always uh, had different brands having different sizes, which I've always been intrigued by. You get a 34 for one, one group and it's a different <laughs> size than 34. For, so I, 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 there's too many inefficiencies there to make that truly the only way to do it. Plus the shopping experience is an experience that people care about. The other thing that, that I've always said is for us to be able to build smaller apartments in our, in our apartment buildings, smaller apartments, the living quarters that where they are, we've got to make sure we supplement that with other areas that people can go. People cannot stay in a small space forever. They need to get out. And that's one of the things that retail provides. Retail provides that getting out, that walking around, that seeing things. And you, once again, using example, the streets of Arlington are very busy, again, in relation to people getting out and walking. And you, you like seeing what's going on in retail environments. So that will come back because there's two different experiences, shopping in a shopping manner and, and then online. And the online inefficiencies, those inefficiencies will always drive people back to, to get stuff. And I'm, I'm one of those people that I hate buying stuff and getting it delivered and then it is wrong and then having to send it back. I, it's the worst thing I can think of, you know? So I, look, I'm, I'm not as worried as a lot of people. I, I, I see things. I, mean, I do see certain areas obviously going to take off. And I do see certain things have happened, for instance, in retail that I've been advocating against for a long time, which is the retailers push too hard and the landlord, uh, landlords allow the tenants to not securitize their leases properly. And by doing that, when the pandemic hit, it showed exactly what that meant which was the landlords ended up with nothing because there was no security behind the tenant and the tenant didn't have to stay. They could walk away. Even if they had savings and could have lasted and come back, they didn't have to worry about that. They could just leave. So I think we're going to adjust the way we do things to, to stop that kind of thing happening. And that should have been stopped anyway because no one should be, I'm not, I'm, I shouldn't be putting retailers in business to see how well they do selling flowers. That says nothing. I don't know anything about selling flowers. Why should I put that guy in business? So I think that has to change anyway to make people think harder about when they open a business. And mm-hmm. that, that would be a very positive thing in relation. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting thinking. And uh, I, I'm just putting it out there. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's interesting to see what trends are kind of evolving from this. And I think a lot of these things were already happening in most markets. 
It just just accelerated it and made people think a little differently about what it could be in the future. Let me shift gears for just a moment and talk a little bit about your team at Monument. Your team has evolved through the years. Um, I interviewed one of your former employees this recently. She was in a, a panel discussion. She was a marketing lady, Tasha Stansel. Yeah. And she said some really good things about her experience there. She said she was there eight years and had a good run and enjoyed it. And obviously, as, as things evolved, <laughs> it was uh, tough to, to, for her to continue there at, uh, when Lehman's situation transpired. Yeah. But, but tell me a little bit about some of the other people there and uh, who you've worked with and some of your key partners and how they've helped your firm grow and evolve over the times. First thing to say is, you know, I'm, I'm always going to say the things you'd expect to say an owner of a company to say about their employees. So that's, you know, that's just rhetoric. I, I'd, I'd rather tell you uh, examples of things to show you what has happened. So when the recession happened, obviously we were hit as hard, if not harder than most companies. And as I told you, I did focus on keeping employees that were the key employees at the time that. Financially made sense and, and tied to the amount of work we had to do to work through the recession and deal with the assets that we, we had at that time too. So we all tightened our belts and and we went through it. And you know everybody that I went to and said, "Will you stay?" and here's what I can do for you, agreed to stay. Such the average tenure uh, was 2008 it was about 15 about uh, 14 years that people had worked at Monument at the point in time. Wait, let me get that right. That's not right. 2008, 10 years. We had 10 years. Sorry, the company was on 10 years old. It was about eight years of the 10 that the average employment time. So, what it was saying was these are people that were experienced and had worked the money in a while, probably could get jobs in the market very easily because of their experience, the work they'd done, but decided they stay on the state group they liked on. They liked what money stood for. What that meant was they liked the fact that we. Very open. We've always been very open to about everything to everyone. I say to people when they come through the door, there's no door that you can't go through. There's no file you can't look in. There's nothing that we are trying to keep away from you. By the way, when you go through a door, all that doors have glass panels and for a reason, so it is inviting to go in. And the people who you go in to talk to should be telling you whatever you want to know. There's no, nothing that, that, that you shouldn't know. So that, that openness and then the range of deals we do and how willing we are to let people come and interact with us, the acquisitions or uh, development while the deals are being done, or property management, means that they truly can see the whole picture as I described to you previously. And I think from that, it's hard to then want to go to some place that wants to put you in a box and this is what you do and all you. Secondly, we're not regimented in relation to our process. We have rules, we have ways of doing things, but we're not, there's no, there's no significant reporting Internally, we report obviously to investment budget, but we're not looking for people to not be their you know control their own their own process, and we want them to be responsible without us having to look over their shoulder the whole time. And I think people feel very comfortable with that. Uh, finally, we do we do a lot of things internally that we bring the company together to make sure everybody knows each other. And I know I normally step back from that. For instance, when we have our retreats every year, that usually go on fairly late at night on the night. Before party i'm normally back in the hotel by 11 to, to let them enjoy it without worrying about me so it, it, it's important to build a culture and 
and, and do it that way. Uh, and I think, as I said, people stayed because that culture was so strong and that they felt that the future was, was still there with Monument coming out. So we have a great team. I don't want to say too much because I don't want all the people from other companies start trying to uh, pick up my, my guys, but uh, my people, but great team that knows how to do exactly what we do here. Would they work at other companies? Probably, and probably very well, but uh, I'm just saying that the, the group we have is, is a phenomenal team. I do find though we do, we do have a lot of people being, who have been picked off over the years and gone to other places. Uh, Tasha actually didn't leave because of the recession. She left because I think she got a job offer that she really liked uh, with CB and, and went over there and then I went to where she is now. And she uh, was very good and she deserved to get good offers. And look, that's always a danger when you've got good people and when you see the deals that we're doing and the volume that we're doing. So that's what it is. I will tell you over the last four or five years through normal attrition, we've uh, added people that are really a younger base and we're very careful about the younger base because we, we, we like younger people, but we like younger people who can start, jump in and, and, and get going off the bat. And the young base that we've added are just phenomenal people. We really like, really like them. We like That's their great. thinking, like their ability to problem solve. We like their independence and that, um, you know, I know there's issues with millennials and all of that. We don't, we don't have any of those issues here with the people that we've brought to the door. Yeah, the investment partner, partners we've got a, 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 good, a good stable now too, and it, it's finding the right people for the right projects as I said. But then it's also finding the right people when you go through the project. There's some people I'm say I got to tell you I, I probably won't do email school again in the future because it's not worth our while. And what that means is they, they the cost to us to work with some financial partners is excessive. Overthinking things. Using lawyers every ten minutes to, to um, deal with a problem rather than dealing with a problem that we know how to deal with. Second guessing us, reporting to them uh, too much and too much detail, such a double handling everything. Look, I've got to tell you, I've gone back to partners and said we didn't we didn't sign up for this and in our fees. This is more expensive than we expected because of the amount of time you take to do this thing. We need to increase our fees. You know, it sounds weird, but. Believe me, I've got to, I've got to cut my own head if, if, if I'm doing a project manager who should be handling three projects and he's only handling or she's only handling one because because of the extent to which the partner is yep. is demanding time of them. Then obviously we're going to to go back and we're, we're going to make we're going to make a living too. So you know we do have some of those partners now that I it's just an easy decision for me. We just won't work with them again. I still believe no matter what that we're the scarce commodity. Uh, and the reason why I believe we're the scarce commodity is because we find the projects that they want to do. Now, if I didn't find good projects, I could understand they'd say, we don't want to work with you either. But if we're bringing stuff with a complete pre-lease on one M Street with NAB like you did, where the, it, it returns a two multiple with the pro formal with the pre-lease, I think that's the deal that most people would want to do. If we bring in a deal with a land value is $53 and the construction cost is $30 a foot below other people so that we're in a basis of $70 a foot plus your ancillary costs below other people, which gives us much more competitiveness in the market. I sure. think that's a deal you want to do. So I do still believe that we are the scarce commodity because of that and because of the extensive knowledge we have in terms. And that's one of the reasons I really like the people at Monument because the people who have been with us for 15, 16, up to 20 years, that knowledge is still here in with Monument and they know how Monument do things. We talk a lot about the problems that have happened and how we deal with it. And we know who to go to in the company that has a certain expertise 
And we do that. We go to those people rather than just trying to work it ourselves. So that's invaluable as well. And an investment group that thinks they can do a deal with a group that's been around for three years and they're going to get the same level of knowledge and service and professionalism as doing a deal with us is out of their mind. And if they, if they do believe that, I mean, where's the, where, where's the world got to? I mean, what, what is the value of experience at that point in time? You know? So we, we feel um, very strongly about who we work with and we feel that there are enough options in the market in relation to investment groups that we can search to find people that are really truly connected to us in the right way. And the first deal, and once you've done it, you know you're going to do multiple other deals. And there's several groups we're working with right now that we're really enjoying the relationship because it is truly professional. Yes, they want to know a lot of answers, but they do it in a professional manner. And when we give them the answers and give them the backup, the answers that we've prepared for ourselves to understand it anyway and give it to them, they get it, ask the questions, and then they're done. So that's an enjoyable process. That's great. So as you look back at your 40-year-plus career, what person or person, people stood out to you as inspirations and why? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I, mean, I, think, I think that doesn't. I do think you, when, you, when you ask the question, I do think people popped into my mind. I didn't know they popped into my mind. I think the Willard job itself wasn't a person, but it was an experience that was really the foundation of my, of my career and deciding to continue to do it. First of all, it's extremely exciting. And the things that I did at an age that I never should have done them were amazing. And, and because I was young and had and lacked experience, I worked three times as hard as I would have otherwise because I had to catch up. And so I think I developed a lot of experience very quickly over that period of time through, through the need and the, you know, certainly a feeling of guilt if I didn't do that because I would never have felt comfortable having been in charge of a project of that size without having the proper knowledge to do it. So I really had to race quickly to catch up. And that was very inspirational in relation to it. And, and, and with that goes the people around it. And there was one gentleman uh, at Intercontinental Hotels uh, who was the operator and partner in that in the, in the hotel project, in the whole project, but, but also they ran the hotel. I remember an English guy and I would report to them constantly let them know where the progress of the hotel was and he would always be kind of looking at me like you know and always wasn't sure whether I was failing him or not so we opened the hotel and we had open 11 out of the 12 floors I think it's 11 out of 12 the top floor wasn't open and I was speaking to him at the opening event I said Michael I said um, I know I've let you down because I only opened 11 floors not 12 and I, you know, I, I said, I always felt like you were kind of looking at me like, you know, this guy's not going to get us what we want. And he turned to me and said, are you kidding? He said, we've never had a hotel this complete before. And I don't want 12 floors. I can't, you know, our staff can't catch up and do it well enough before we trained them better and got used to it. And she said, I'm, I'm, you know, I can't believe how much you got up. And so that was a, a pivotal moment in my life when I was dealing with managing expectations of mine and other people. I think that the, the Apollo relationship was big. This guy, Bill Scully, had a lot of effect on me with his knowledge of the financial world. He also taught me with his being very, very direct. And I, I actually don't have problems with being direct in this world because we, it's not, I mean, the preambles on stuff before you say something, it's, it's sometimes a patronizing. It's, it's not really valuable. So I'm much happy to get into the discussion, especially if you want to move through things quickly. So he taught me that 
and he taught me to truly understand the full picture and how everything's affected. Radini taught me a lot of things from the standpoint of a completely different way than the traditional way of, of, of managing a very large equity partner, and that was pivotal to me. You know, I can I can go back and see other things. So that for me, and this, I don't want it to sound cynical or arrogant, but for me, it was a matter of people showing me sometimes, not these people I mentioned, but other people, what their position I thought they'd be able to do and then showing me they couldn't do it and me then understanding what you needed to do stuff. Does that make sense? You know, I was disappointed in some people in their positions they should be. You know, I won't mention a name, but a long time ago at Car when I had a senior vice president looking over my shoulder, looking at an Excel spreadsheet that we were doing for a, for a project, you could tell after four or five questions that he asked about the spreadsheet that he didn't know how the pro forma really worked. And those kind of things were very eye-opening for me. And I've had enough of those in my life that triggered me always wanting to work for myself because I found that you get pretty disappointed thinking someone does know something and they don't. And often they can take things away from you because of that. You know, I got to a point in my life where I wanted to find the quickest route to the knowledge and then to working on my own so I didn't have to bump into people that might slow me down. I was always concerned about that. Uh, sure. In fact, when I left the car, the, the, when I told the guy that I was, I, was, I was leaving, he said to me, Michael, I know you're unhappy here and I know you want more, but you shouldn't think that you can ever get rich at a family-owned entrepreneurial real estate development company. I go, what? I said, that's the price that I should get rich because if they understand the value I bring, they're going to get even richer because they're going to own more than me with that. So, so you know, you get people who just don't know any better sometimes when they say stuff, and but it just shines a light on the fact that somehow the family's convinced him of that and he's going to stay there for a long time in that position and no disrespect to Carr, but my monument at one point was twice as big as Carr ever was after we, we we got to that point. So that was kind of a realization too that, that I was with this big development company and then left it. And many years later, the size that Monument was with Lehman was, was bigger than I had. You know? So how do you see uh, your life priorities among family work and giving back to the community? That's another good question. So to me, to give back properly, I've got to make sure that I'm doing the right thing by Monument because I do have a major responsibility here for the people here at Monument. And that's that's my first responsibility in relation to, to then being able to give back. I do believe, though, you, you can't wait for things to happen to do things because otherwise you're sometimes waiting forever. So there have to be points in time that you are doing stuff. So I do feel it is very important to give back, but at all times I want to make sure that I've done the right thing by the people here as I'm doing something else. And that's often, you know, how much should I spend of my time doing other things when they need me here to be helping them get things done that, that, that keeps the company going the way it should be. I will tell you my family priority has certainly increased lately because I have a one-year-old child, which in my stage in life is kind of weird, but I, I love it. I really love it. He's the most energetic kid I've ever seen and a delight, and I'm seeing what parents was like without the concerns that I had my first go around because I was a young parent didn't know any better. Now that I know, it's much easier to deal with the things that are going on. And you think, oh, am I going to want to change the diapers and 
deal with um, late nights and I, it's all phenomenal. It's all fun and I enjoy every moment. And, and I'm also at an age that I don't think I'm missing out on stuff that I can do when you're younger because I know what that stuff is and I know how to go and do it if I want to do it. So that's family life's very important. Obviously, my child and my son and my wife's pregnant with a second child, which will be the end for me then. That's a very important uh, part of it. Also, my kids that I've had in my first marriage is very important. And my, my son actually works with me here. He does his own business. Oh, great. Uh, I'm invested in his business and a consultant for him when he needs to be. So uh, I'm, I'm working with him. I see him regularly, which is really nice. Uh, my daughter's in London, so I don't see her as much. Family's very important to me. And then priorities are I want to leave this company in a place that other people here can run it if they so choose. We, we particularly didn't call Monument Derby in my former partner's name. We called it Monument so it could have its own life, a life of its own. So it could continue on past when I'm not here. You know? And I'd love to know that I wouldn't know it, but I'd love to know it, it's around 50 years today as well. And we certainly have people capable of continuing to run the company going forward. So that's my current goal is to to focus the company in a way that it's financed properly, it's independently financed so that it can continue on doing the business that it's done at the same level. Now, once you get to a certain level of development, a certain quality, a certain amount as far as your volume, it becomes a niche that is very comfortable. You, you don't really want to move that around too much because you don't do things as efficiently. So, you know, we have a niche as far as the size of it. We like bigger projects because they're easier to manage and from, a, from an overall standpoint, these are bigger that help to cover the costs. Uh, and we know it's average, but we know what it should look like at all times. So we, I want to make sure I continue to do that. So we've got to get the company in position uh, over the next four or five years that it can, it can be that way. Do I want to retire? No, there's no way I'm going to retire. I, I need to be doing this because I like to get my keep my mind working. I was down the beach while the pandemic was on for a while. I like that, but I could not work. I just have to find the right balance uh, and make sure people here are comfortable uh, doing what what I might do, you know, that I don't want to do anymore, such that I can I can do enough work but also enjoy my life. So there's a lot of things going on in my life now that are kind of exciting in relation to where it goes. What would be the most surprising event? in your life, in your career to date? I mean, what, what happened to you that was just came out of nowhere that you just could not believe? Well, it's unfortunately, what I want to say, I'm, I'm thinking on the good side and not many things on the good side as there are on the other side. The breakup with my partner was not a good thing and was, was it, it took a while, so it was less instantaneously surprising, but it was very frustrating and very sad for, for, for me and for the company. Because it was it was a very good partnership before that happened, so that was a surprising and unfortunate. And then Lehman bankruptcy was, I mean, I honestly at that point in time, if I looked on my balance sheet and where I was in my career before the bankruptcy, it was kind of a storybook tale. It was done everything that I needed to have been through enough recessions that come out of them. The points in time in my career that they happened, they were not as punitive. As they could have been, had built a successful company, Monument, had a phenomenal partner with the size and, and number of deals that could make me a lot of money. And so that was a real shock, especially at that point in my career, because you grow with it and you grow in relation to the things that you have, the things that you 
experience, the way you live your life, uh, how the company operates and how other people live their lives, you grow, that all grows together. And then when that instantaneous thing happens, it all deteriorates. And you're like, oh, it's like I've got to start again here. I've got to get back on the horse that I've gotten how to ride and ride for all this again. And it was it was initially daunting to even contemplate the amount of work that would be necessary to get this boat righted again, ship right up, up right again. And I and I actually thought very carefully uh, at one point soon after that of saying, I'm done, I'm done with this, you know. Yeah. Because you, you look at it, what happened that people don't understand is that my partner went out. So all the assets that we had, uh, it wasn't as though we just stopped, waited till the recession ended and started again. I lost all those assets because Lehman grabbed them. So I had to start building assets up again, whereas before I had assets closing every year and bringing in money, nothing for that period of time. And then the three-year cycles had to be started again as I raised money in this work. So it was a, it was a major setback in relation to timing of income and, and projects that we had been accustomed to. And that was, that was pretty sick. Good things I'm thinking of? Yeah, we've had some, I mean, the good things I am have now, I am now thinking of those days when you throw up an office building and you kind of knew there was a tenant out there, but along would come a tenant that just said, I want the whole building. We haven't had those days for a while, but I did that. The first nine office buildings we did as Monument Realty, they all, they all pre-leased prior to the end of construction. After we started construction, inspect them all, but prior to the end of construction, I, there's no one that's doing that now. Those were great moments, even though I'll tell you, those moments are now better to think about now looking back because they don't happen anymore. <laughs> Whereas then, then they did happen and it was like, oh, there you go, we released another building. But that was fun because those performance worked exactly the way we wrote them out, which is also fun. If you, if you, and people go, what are you doing, my program? We should always that. Oh, yeah, sure. Right? It does not happen that long much, but those were perfect. And then we had the deals like um, E-Trade, the E-Trade deal we did where we – it was Forest City was selling air rights in the in the in the Boston Mall, and we first said, "Yeah, we'll buy the air rights and we'll build a building." But then, because the mall was under it, Forest City came back and kept on saying, "Well, you can't mark up any of our tenants." We go, "What are you talking about? We, we you're selling us the thing. We're building a building on your mall. You can't have go and say we can't. We've got to do. We're going to do. No, I can't do that." So we got to the point where we're about to walk away from the deal, and we said, "Ah, let's try something." We said, how about you build the building and we'll give you a takeout where we, we buy the building upon completion. You have to build it to our spec. We'll design it, we'll review the design, but we'll design it, build it to our specs, and then we'll give you a takeout with a cost of the land plus the value of the building at the end. And they thought about it for a while and they reluctantly agreed and said, okay, we'll do that deal, right? Now, they didn't know what was about to happen. And when it happened, it was actually a little tricky because we fully leased the building to E-Trade during the construction. So we leased as the contract owners to buy right. the building. Right. Once they finished, we pre-leased it during the, the purchase, during the construction for a very good number, by the way. And so we went back to Forest City and we carefully written in the documents that they had to approve tenant work going on and approve a lease in the building that they kind of still own because we were contract mm -hmm. owners. They had to do it if we presented it to them. And we were very careful about that wording because we thought maybe something like this could happen. And 
how you get them to approve, if you didn't get them approved, they could have leveraged that in relation to the, the building. Of course. So they had to they had to approve it. And then E-Trade started their tenant work in the building prior to the building being closing. Completed. Yeah. So we we not only made them build the building, take more some risk in relation to the building, which they we tried to minimize, but some risk in relation to building the building. We then turned around. And put them and leased it and had the tenants start doing their work in the building prior to finishing the building. And I guarantee you, Forest City wanted to forget that deal because obviously we made out like bandits because we didn't have a dime in the deal before we had the whole thing built and pre leased. And so leased. IRRs are always good messages. That's, that's, so a, that was a, that's a pleasant memory. Have you that, seen yeah. that property since they've redeveloped it recently? It's really impressive. Oh, they've done a good job. Going to get right. Look, here's another, here's another thing that I did in relation to that deal that I was pleased that I did. So E-Trade, uh, that was going to be their headquarters here. And so they wanted some glitz. So they added a six-story stairwell internal to the building, mm-hmm. decorative stairwell. I mean, it was gorgeous. And I knew when they were discussing that, I knew I had them. So I got a full restoration provision in the, in the lease for that. And actually, the owners of that building called me and said, I want to thank you. And I said, I don't know what you're well, thank me for what? They said, the only reason that E-Trade stayed in that building, I don't know the story's correct, but this is what I remember, that I, the only reason E-Trade stayed in that, that building is because of the restoration <laughs> Otherwise, they would have moved. He said there was about a $6 million cost to restore the building. I mean, think about it. To put, take the stair out, put yeah. all the slabs back, sure. right? And restore it. So it was that cost for something that kept them there. So that was another good story about that. And luckily for the person that owned the building, they got the benefit of that. Yeah. Okay, so, I've got stories like this all day. We yeah, well, we don't have much. To, the last two questions. One more. Okay. What, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Wow. I think, you know, first of all, I'm assuming that he hasn't picked a real estate career because we'll start with that. I'm saying, I would say, Pick your career very carefully. And I would have said, when I was 25, the real estate side is not a bad thing to pick because it it's not as controlled as it is today. So then it was much easier to, to make things happen. Michael Darby, 25, could build a 250,000 square foot building off his balance sheet and with everything that he had. But I don't know that real estate is as, is too, I think it's too controlled right now to compare to some other industries where you could do things um, that are easy. My, my, my son's doing a tech deal, for instance. Mm-hmm. He's got a software program that's incredible, and he's it's, it's about to, to take it through the process and bring it to market. Now, not everyone can do that, but there may be other other markets that there's an easier path with less risk. I mean, not everyone at 25 can say, I want to be a, a developer like Michael Darby is because it's just a lot of things you have to, I mean, First of all, you have to have significant financial resources, not only your own, but, but also others. Then you're, you're guaranteeing things all through your career that are very difficult. And you've got to have the mindset to be able to deal with having those guarantees out there all the time and all the things that you sign. Sure. I mean, sleeping at night is sometimes not as easy as it should be. Um, so the 25-year-old person, I, I, I actually, if it was real estate or some of the other things that, that aren't quite like the easy things to get into. I'd say do go into real estate. I'd say make sure you have, you start with knowledge. Knowledge is the most important thing you can have. Don't go into real estate thinking you know 
everything and learn as much about construction as you can <laughs> if you're going to be a developer because that will be a big part of it. And then just don't make mistakes. Try to minimize the mistakes. You know, keep your keep your leverage where it should be. Use the money that is there for that to do what they, they do and they're out there to do it. Make sure your guarantees are the minimum you can. Um, and don't don't overstretch yourself at any point in time and, and do what you know you can do. I mean it's it seems you know very cliche, but that's what I tell people, right? Okay. Last question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway or a place where millions of people will see it, what would it say, Michael? You know, right now in the world, to tell you the truth, I really think the answer is stop fighting and learn to get along. And I think that applies to everything. I think the basis of any anything that we do these days has the potential of contention. That you'd start off contentious, even negotiations with a lender today where I know what the lender will do and won't do. There seems to be that first step is contention. Uh, we're going to go into this and, and fight over things with the JV deals, the construction deal, with, with processes. It's all, it's all that. I, I, we didn't used to have that. We used to have it where people actually went in with trust and went in with a desire to be fair and get things done. So, and, and I don't, that just doesn't happen in business. We all know that's happening in the world we live in especially in this country, and I just, it's got to stop. You know, it's, it's got to stop. I, my wife is um, half African-American. My son is a quarter African-American. I love it. I love that diversity. I, I, can't, I can't imagine anyone ever um, looking at my wife or my son and feeling that they're bad people just because they're, they've got African-American descent. It's, it's, it just doesn't make sense to me in this world. So um, it's, it's, you know, we've got, we've got to get along. We've, we've got to get along. Michael, thank you very much for your oh, time. Pleasure. It's been a very interesting and informative discussion, and we'll look forward to uh, sharing that with you very shortly. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. So we've just finished up uh, with Michael Darby, and as usual, I am happy to introduce my co-host here, Tom Amos, uh, for the podcast or for the po podcast postscript that we usually have. And so, Tom, take it away. Good morning, John. For this podcast, Michael Darby talked a lot about the impacts in 2018 with Lehman Brothers uh, filing. 2008, actually. I'm sorry. What did I say? 2018. 2008. <laughs> about Lehman Brothers filing for bankruptcy and the impact that that had, not only on his business, but but just the, the economy in general. And so pulled up some statistics of Lehman Brothers kind of leading up to the financial collapse, tremendous growth, obviously leading up to that. They acquired Aurora and B&C um, in 1997 and 2000, respectively. And at one point in 2016, they were lending about $50 billion per month, which, which is just astonishing even to think about in today's terms. And so right before that collapse, their equity position was about 30 times greater than their capital. So their, their commercial real estate holdings were 30 times greater than capital than their capital, leverage about 3.3% there at 30 times. And so I was interested to see, you know, how that stacked up to, in today's terms. And, you know, as a result of the Great Recession, 
in 2008, supplementary leverage ratios are limited to 5%. So they make sure that banks are not over leveraged at that time. And, you know, most of the major banks right now are operating 6.5% or much higher or, or higher, kind of in a 6.5 to maybe 8 or 9% range. But, you know, I guess when I, when I saw that, I, I thought, and that's not tremendously larger than where Lehman Brothers was in 2018. You know, sorry, I keep saying that. 2008, they're only about double leveraged what Lehman Brothers was back then. And John, I'm, I, I'm interested to talk with you here today about what, what does the forecast look like for major banks and lenders? You know, the Fed has signaled that they're going to keep those record low rates that they've had here recently for for a long time for for years to come and what what does that mean for for major banks for lenders and and what type of impact will that have on construction and development for the foreseeable future well i'm not an economist so i'll preface that right up front and i'm also not as active in the lending market as i was at one time but i'm going to give you somewhat of a historic perspective and also some observations i've heard recently about uh, the world currency and uh, the way you know the Fed operates and what their thought process is. But an interesting statistic I heard recently is that 30% of the debt that the U.S. government has is foreign-owned. So we continue to float more and more dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars in debt, and so. I don't know the number right now, but it's in the tens of trillions, I believe, in debt that we owe to foreign governments. So the reserve currency is is the U.S. dollar worldwide. If that were to change, or let's say the yuan, the Chinese currency, becomes the reserve currency someday down the road, that's to severely limit the flexibility that the U.S. government has to operate and it will curtail all the spending programs that you could possibly imagine that the U.S. government has. So you could have a an instantaneous depression in this country if that were not the case. So everything is built on faith that the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world, and it'll continue that way. If for whatever reason we have a disruption and the faith is lost in the U.S. currency worldwide, uh, we're looking at a disruption that none of us have ever seen ever before. The Great Depression looked like, you know, a piece of cake <laughs> compared to that. You'll you'll not see anything like it. It's somewhat the fears that people had with the pandemic a little bit up front as to not knowing how the economic situation would be handled. So those early days in March, people didn't know how the Fed would react to it. And everybody was saying, God, I hope they do everything they can to loosen the reins and give us the money to, to be able to operate. Well, that's what they did. Yeah. But in retrospect, they couldn't have done it without the strength of the currency faith worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't have those stimulus packages that we were rolling out earlier no. this year unless you are the uh, the reserve currency for the world, you know? No. And U.S. banks, the banking system, have been international investors for years and years and have supported economies around the world. So, you know, our network is bigger than any other 
banking network worldwide as well. So JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, you know, and then investment banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of New York and State Street banks, listing the big ones, all have international operations in Europe, Asia, Australia, even in Africa, where commerce is done. So the tentacles are out there. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're mainstream in most of, most of the countries in the world financially. So, you know, we have the backbone there to, to keep it going. Right. The question is, certain powerful entities worldwide may somehow decide to do a different structure. So maybe the blockchain someday becomes the prevalent world currency. Who knows? And whether that's not even a currency, but it's a it's a it's a formation of trust of, of transacting business. So right. whether currencies long term, who knows? We they may have a whole different way of payment. I mean, currency itself is physically not, you know, all the trillions that the that the Fed has issued is certainly not in hard currency. Mm. It's all in trust. Right. It's all in, you know, digital accounts. It's nothing more than that. Right. They haven't printed trillions of dollars or, you know, you don't have uh, the, the U.S. Mint down here stacking right. out truckloads of, of dollars every day. No. Right. It's, it's all digital. I was, I was having a conversation with a friend recently, and I think he was, you know, doom and gloom a little bit. And, you know, he felt like, you know, whether it's China or Euro or blockchain or some other form of currency that, you know, we, you know, I think he's just worried about the U.S. dollar remaining as the reserve currency. It's so hard to disrupt something like that, that system that's in place. And I compared it to him. It's like, I remember um, hearing about us, you, the United States trying to convert over to metric, right? And how difficult it is to take a system that's in place and change something that is a lot simpler in, in a lot of ways, such as going, going to metric system. But once you have so many systems in place that are relying on whether, you know, the dollar or basing, you know, dimensions for whatever it might be on inches, you know, it's, it's so hard to uproot that and, and, and disrupt that in some way. In a much darker perspective, we fortunately have a unified worldwide view about nuclear power and nuclear, nuclear weapons. If you had a rogue actor that got control of nuclear weapons, how disruptive would that be? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that wasn't under control. Now you could look at somebody like North Korea, but you certainly have them completely under control because you, know, you can pull the rug out from under their economy instantly. And uh, so, I mean, I'm just saying that's a dark way of looking at things. Yeah, but, but it has to be something know, disruptive. It, it has to do with trust and, and reliability worldwide. Well, that this, this network has to rely on some framework, otherwise you couldn't accomplish it. So, you know, we're looking at a new administration coming in. How are the, how is the, the Democratic Party going to operate? I don't think it's going to change a whole lot, frankly. All these new social programs, certainly the right wing raises all the specters of all the spending. Well, guess what? More spending has been done in the last four years than it's ever done before. 
right. for be, for different reasons. Right. So, you know, that specter is gone as far as I can see. Yeah. Well, and, you know, with the election, <laughs> as far as we know, uh, being behind us at this point, who, who yes. knows? By the time this is released, maybe maybe we'll live in a completely different world. But um, if the stock market's any indicator, it looks like I think that a lot of um, people are just fortunate or, or glad that glad, glad that the election's behind us, and hopefully, you know, lending kind of gets back to for for the construction and development. You know, they they get back to moving the ball forward. My own personal experience here lately, we're seeing some projects that uh, that were tabled at the beginning of COVID. We're talking to them and having some serious conversations about those projects picking back up. So that's promising and hopefully that continues. Well, I think that the faith in the U.S. economy is is still there. And obviously yeah. the, the stock market is a good indicator. The tech companies that drive the stock market today are certainly making big investments in continuing production and and rolling out innovative things all the time. So I think the U.S. economy is, despite the pandemic, is still somewhat robust, at least at certain levels. Now, there are levels that are not, and hopefully the top levels will help the bottom levels, and that's what's going to happen with this new administration, where the tax laws are going to change and there'll be a little bit more of leveling of the, you know, the rich and poor in this country a little bit more, I think. So we'll see how that plays out. So Any other thoughts today? That, uh, that's uh, it. I, I will say that Michael Darby was uh, uh, very interesting in his uh, observations of his, how he went through those hard times and how he's recovered. I wasn't able to get too much into his more recent business activity. It was more historic, but I may have a subsequent interview with him down the road if we, uh, if things uh, move for him forward like they could, because he's, he's rebounded well and come back in the last 12 years. So it's shown a lot of resiliency, which is a, a, a great sign of a good, of a good operator. So on that note, thank you listeners for joining us today. And I appreciate it one more time. And we'll see you again in, in a couple of weeks. Take care.